Are we back? We're back. Back to the bin. Hey everybody and welcome to Back to the Bins. This is episode number 91. I'm Paul Spataro and I'm here with my buddy Scott Gardner. Hey, how's it going? It's going good. How you doing? <laughs> I'm doing great, man. I'm ready to talk some old school funny books. <laughs> I'm always ready to talk old school funny books. <laughs> Unfortunately, today we're going to be talking without our friend Mike, who is not available to be here with us. Who? <laughs> guy, this guy Bailey, you may have heard of him. He's done a podcast or two over the years, <laughs> or two thousand. Yes, yeah, really. <laughs> so, sadly, Mike isn't with us today, and uh, I guess that that's going to be. You know, hopefully, we could do all three of us most of the time. But uh, tonight, it's me and you, and the next one is going to be me and Mike, and you're not going to be able to make it. Well, fine, screw so, you guys. So now you're going to have to figure out a night when I'm not available, so you can record <laughs> without me. <laughs> Just for revenge purposes. <laughs> well, the fun part of this is going to find when we all talk to each other later on to find out what we all said about each other behind our backs. That, that, that's the best part. You said you wouldn't tell Mike. <laughs> <laughs> so let's see. Are we ready to just dive right into this, you think? Well, I think so. I, I, I think I'm uh, ready to go old comics instead of new now. All right. Do we have any preamble at all? I was trying to think if I had anything. I don't really think so. I hadn't really hadn't really scored any uh, any uh, recent uh, back issues or anything like that. So, have you have you made any uh, back issue purchases lately? Well, you know what I did. I stopped by one of the local stores last week, and uh, I went over. They have a fifty cent box. Mm -hmm. So I, I went over and I scored about ten indie books while I was there, <laughs> just just for the purposes of this show. Now, what did I tell you? I told you don't spend money for this. <laughs> well, I, I think five dollars is an investment that I'm willing to make, and uh, I haven't I haven't actually read any of them yet, so I have to see if there's anything there that I feel is worthy of actually discussing. I just grabbed ten that I. You know that I that I hadn't seen before, and I thought this looks interesting. Let me grab it. Cool. But I'm gonna have to look at them a little bit more closely. That totally works. Well, it's like I told you before, and I, I think this is off air, but I'll go ahead and throw it out there. Sometimes the worst books make the best shows, so it's fine if you got you know if you end up with with a turkey. You know, even if you read it and go, man, this was horrible. Bring it to the show, man, because sometimes those really are the 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 best episodes. Yeah, I just don't want to bring the ones that are so bad that, like, just reading it became such a chore. Right, yeah. I don't mind if I have, you know, criticism of it that it was bad, but I just don't want to do, you know, really, really bad, like, hard-to-read bad. Right. Well, yeah, but there's we a also, difference between uh, this was a lot of fun because it was so bad and, and, you know, this was so bad I couldn't get through it. Because I've definitely had those. I mean, I, the, the random number generator, which is nine times out of ten, that's how I pick... Um, books for this show is I, I literally d do just use a random number generator and a couple of times something has come up where I, I just couldn't make it through the book I was like you know this won't be fun from a bad comics you know that I can rip apart perspective this will just be painful because it's just it, it's that bad you know so yeah there have been a couple like that over the years yeah so far I'm I'm usually you know like I'm I'm not I'm not saying, oh, let me do this issue, but I'm just kind of glancing through things, and when I catch one that, that I think, oh, yeah, I remember this, uh, you know, this was 
good for some reason. Mm-hmm. I've been picking those. Uh, but I, you know, I'm, I'm guessing, you know, I, I have no idea what the listeners are thinking, if they like the choices we're making or if they're thinking, you know, you're going too much seventies cause I'm obviously 70 heavy. Uh, you know, it, I guess I don't even know cause you can't get emails now, right? Well, that, that's one thing. Uh, I actually, you know, strangely enough, I was just thinking about this last night is that, uh, I really need to take some time and see if our email is salvageable. And if it is, then uh, I really want to try to make a, a, a fresh commitment to actually addressing emails again on on you know really on all the shows that I participate on, but particularly uh, back to the bins because that was always you know one of the the important factors of this show was you know the listener feedback and knowing what people were thinking about the shows. So um, yeah, I would say don't you know if you're listening, don't give up on us yet as far as the listener feedback because I really do uh, you know enjoy getting the feedback and I enjoy you know presenting it on the shows. It's just basically what happened was I I feel like more than likely what happened is we got attacked whether it was somebody being a wise ass or something. But Gmail just our our Gmail and all of our accounts, all of our two true freaks accounts for all of our shows. We just got buried under this constant avalanche of junk mail. And I mean, it was everything from, you know, make your thing bigger to, you know, the, the, you know, the uh, Ethiopian scams and all that. I mean, it was just, it's ridiculous. We're just getting Mm. buried under this just mountain of junk email. And it became such a pain in the ass to keep weeding through it that we basically just gave up. But I hate to do that because I know that we do have, you know, some regular contributors and, and stuff, you know, to the, the feedback process via email. So if it's salvageable, I want to go back and try to save that. If it's not, then it may just be a matter of, of just setting up some new email addresses. And the only reason I haven't done that is then that means that I have to go back and we have to change all of the closers, which is kind of a pain in the ass. But, you know, if I have to do it, I'll do it. You know what I mean? But I, I do want to yeah. try to salvage the listener feedback portion, you know, as much as possible. Because yeah, it, it is important. It, in hearing what, you know, what they're thinking. Right. Yeah. Well, it is. It's important to know, you know, what, what are your listeners saying? You know, because if they're writing you to say, you know, I want more of this, then, you, you know, you try to do that. And it's, most especially, though, it's important if they're writing in to say, hey, you know, that segment that you do, well, it blows and we don't like it. You know, you really need to know that. So, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well... All I really got uh, as far as uh, back issue talk, you know, just general stuff is, man, I have been blowing through some old comics lately. I love this, uh, my new iPad. I've uh, got that comic app on there. And I just, I don't know what it is about the digital versus the paper, but I can read so many more comics in the digital format than I could ever do on paper. And I have just been blowing through some old comics. And I'll tell you, the big thing that's uh, that's really been uh, thrilling me is... uh, you remember the old uh, Planet of the Apes black and white magazine that Marvel put out? Oh, yeah. I have always wanted to read those. And I have a collection that's about roughly about half of the series. And I've always wanted to read them. I've had them for at least at least a decade and a half. I picked them up at a flea market for like a song somewhere. But it was one of those things that was like, eh, I'll wait till I get the rest of them. And of course, I've never found any more issues cheap. And mm-hmm. now they go for very expensive, you know, back issue prices. But digitally, I now have, you know, the whole series. So I've been uh, reading through those. 
And I really didn't know what to expect because the one or two I had read over the years were, you know, they were kind of hit and miss. One of them I really liked and the other one I thought was god awful. So I really didn't know what to expect. But I'm digging them because the the cool thing about them is that you get at least two features in every magazine. And there would be one story that was an entirely original story, you know, set somewhere in the timeline of, of apes. And then usually as the backup feature, it would feature a chapter of an adaptation from one of the films. And they're going right in order, you know, from the original Charlton Heston movie right up through at the point I'm at right now. I'm just starting the adaptation of, uh, of Conquest of the planes, mm. the fourth film. And I'm, I'm going to have to get really a little these. It. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. I'm really digging their, their adaptation of Escape from the Planet of the Apes was fantastic. Fantastic! I really, really dug it. The art was great. The adaptation was great. You know, I have always uh, considered myself, you know, something of an expert on Marvel's movie adaptations. Somehow this one has has always just slipped right past me. I, I don't think I'd ever seen it before. And it was really, really top notch. I, I really enjoyed it. And uh, well, that, you, that's you kind of... Hmm? You know I love those movies. I oh mean, yes, yeah. That those those were the, uh, you know, record them with the little cassette recorder mm-hmm. in front of the TV, and then yep. sit and listen to them over and over again. You know, it was, it was the you know 1975 version of videotape. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, it was the same way. Well, I'm a huge fan of you know I'm a huge Planet of the Apes fan, but you know my my two favorites were always you know the original and the third one. You know, Escape. And uh, and I've been doing this as kind of you know behind the scenes homework because eventually I, I have no idea when so I mean don't don't be holding your breath for this but eventually um, we will do some sort of Planet of the Apes thing and I, I'm I, what I'm kind of envisioning is uh, like a Planet of the Apes month you know but when I when we do that I really want to try to be authoritative about it as much as possible I want to cover not only the movies I really want to be able to cover all the comic series. And there's been a lot of them over the years. So I've been, you know, like I say, quietly behind the scenes, I've been trying to bone up on all the other comics. And I'd never, as I say, I've never read the, the black and white magazine. So I started there. And, uh, and I've been pleasantly surprised because for the most part, it's really solid stuff. And I didn't expect it to be. Because one of the classic covers on those is there's one that I always looked at and said, okay, that's going to be a tough story to get through is the one where it shows basically it looks like, uh, like, uh, Davy Crockett apes, you know, it's like all these Mm. apes on a, on a wooden raft, like on the Mississippi or something. And they're all dressed like Davy Crockett. And I thought, I don't know what the story is there, but it looks like it's going to be really goofy and painful. (laughs) It was goofy, but it was still pretty cool, you know. It was, it was an interesting twist, you know what I mean? And and I like that sort of thing. So, well, when you when you're ready for your back Planet of the Apes month, I can't see any reason why we shouldn't do a Planet of the Apes back to the bins. Absolutely. Absolutely. How would, you know, how that would might you, be a good uh, way to cover the comics. Now that you, you now that you think about it, we could do the like do the movie coverage and such as two true freaks proper, but do the comics as back to the bins. I like that idea. I like that well, idea. You might have to give me a little time to catch up on some of the books, but, uh, I, I definitely be up for the work on that one. Sure. Yeah. Basically what I, what I've got lined up for myself is, um, is, you know, the original black and white magazine. And then I never realized that adventures of the planet of the apes or, or was it adventure adventures on the planet of the apes. 
um, the the monthly series by Marvel. It's are, just reprints of the backup features, and right. I never realized that before. So that's right, I, actually not original material at all. It's all the backup adaptations from the black and white magazine. You know, they colored them and put them out as as monthlies. So that's you know that's easily covered. And then um, there's the adventure series, which only ran, I want to say, twenty something issues, I think. But then there was a number of miniseries that spun out of there, like Ape City and uh, some some different ones. And then there was also, hmm? so I don't even remember which uh, which company it was, but there was another company in between the Marvel adaptations and the current rendition. I'm tempted to say Dark Horse, but I'm not sure that they had a a, a run of different series. Is that is that the adventure comic? Is that what you're talking about? Well, a- after the Marvel series was done, like right in, after, in the in the late '80s or early '90s. I'm right, sure. yeah, that was Adventure Comics. That was actually oh, the okay. name of the company. Yeah, it was. It was oh, okay. Adventure I thought you were talking about Adventures on Planet Apes. My mistake. Right. Oh, I might I might have misspoken myself, but yeah, it was it was a company that that was actually the name of the company was Adventure Comics, and they did a, a series that ran a couple of years. I want to say it was like 24 or 26 issues, something like that. And there were a number of miniseries like Urchak's Folly and um, Ape City and it's just several different ones. So altogether, it, it works out to something around 50 issues all told, you know, for, for everything that they put out that was apes related. And uh, I plan to read that. I've read most of the series proper, but not all of it, but, but most of it. I remember very little of it other than I dug it at the time that I read it. So I'm, I'm anxious to get back into that because, like I said, I, I really don't remember the specifics, just the general feeling of going, yeah, you know, this is all right. Um, and then, of course, there's the latest. Then there's a mini series in there somewhere. Some I, I have no idea what the name of the company was. But there was some independent company just a couple years ago put out a uh, five or six issue limited series that was called um, Revolution. I think that was the name of it. Revolution on the Planet of the Apes. That was kind of a, a, a sequel to, it was like a missing chapter. It was supposed to take place between Conquest and Battle 4. Mm-hmm. And I've I've never read it. I've heard mixed reviews on it, but I plan to try to get to that one eventually. And then, of course, there's the new stuff that's coming out now by um, by Boom Studios. Yeah, I've fallen behind on that, but I really liked what I read. I tell you what's really good. As much as I've been enjoying the series proper, the mini series that they just started putting out, man, that's some really really good stuff. The first that's the one that focuses on Doctor Zayas. Yes. Yes, and it was oh, it was really, really good because it was uh, the first miniseries. I'm trying to remember the name of it. I want to say it was Betrayal. I think it was Betrayal on the Planet of the Apes. I think that was the name of it. And it was a it was a Doctor Zaius centric story that takes place about 20 years before the original movie with Charlton Heston really really good stuff because it really captured the feel and the flavor of the first apes movie and it really gave some important backstory to dr zayas and why he acts the way he acts and why he does the things that he does in the original film and it answers a lot of questions because i had always suspected that Zayas knew a lot more than he ever let on and that series basically confirms that he knew everything and it well, he basically almost how he knows it. 
he almost comes out and says it in right. so many words at the end of the first movie. Right. You know, how he's dreaded his coming and all of that. So, you know, he knew. Right. And this 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 series, by the end of it, you come to understand how he knew what he knew. And I thought it was really beautifully done. Because, you know, that's the one thing with Planet of the Apes is that it does have a very wonky and very inconsistent continuity that it sometimes is very hard to resolve internally. But I liked that miniseries because I thought it did a really good job of, of walking that tightrope back between being very faithful and, you know, sort of retconning slash explaining, you know, and, and it mm-hmm. really did a good job at that. And really good series. I, I highly recommend that one. And I think that just got traded, if I'm not mistaken. And then there's a new one that's coming out that's I believe is uh, is picking up from where that one left off, I, I think. I'm not sure the name of that. I want to say Treachery on the Planet of the Apes, but I could be wrong. Some, something like that. But it's whatever the latest miniseries is from, uh, from Boom, that's the, that's the one. Now, were you, were you much of a fan of the TV show or the cartoon? I barely remember the cartoon, and uh, I've tried to watch the TV show, and I couldn't make it very far into it. But the problem I had with that stuff was I didn't really understand like battle I've never liked battle because I couldn't understand where is this uh, you know where is this supposed to be taking place what's the backstory and I had the same problem with the TV show was trying to figure out when is this supposed to be happening and how does it fit with you know the the original Charlton Heston film and it wasn't until really recently, you know, looking at actual timelines that people had created online and stuff like that, that you kind of get an idea. Okay, now I see where this fits. But the movies themselves and the TV show themselves, you know, on their own, you know, at, at the time that they were released when I was a kid, I, I just couldn't make sense of it. I, they don't come right out and tell you, okay, this takes place here. You know, you just kind of have to figure it out. And I well, you figure I, w- with battle. You know, conquest ends with, you know, basically uh, Caesar's the only one who's speaking. Right. Uh, and then, uh, what's it, his wife's name is Lisa. Uh, if I remember, know, I, if I, I remember I, right, I think her name is Lisa, and and it ends with her saying no. Right. So she becomes basically the second ape to speak. Right. That's where that ends. So now, by the time battle begins, not only have they formed their society, but they have. Their son Cornelius, his son's Cornelius, right? I think so. Yeah, and he's or is it Caesar? I would say no. Caesar is Caesar's is, the father. That's right. Rod- yeah, yeah. Roddy yeah. McDowell is Caesar, right? Uh, and I would say the son is probably thirteen or fourteen years old then, right? So you got you got to figure battles got to take place a good twenty years after conquest, right? That's that's basically as as good a timeline as I can put together for that. The, and the, I've told I've told you the story. My my, strangely enough, my fondest uh, ape memory is uh, me and my brother punching each other. Uh, that we you know back in, when battle was when battle came out, and then what they did was the the local theaters would have a go ape day, uh, <laughs> and and what they did was they show all five movies back to back. Sweet. So so we went to the we went to the Nostrum Theater on Nostrum Avenue and uh, Kings Highway. And uh, we were going to spend the entire day. And we had some friends there and whatever. You know, it was a whole crowd of us. But uh, 
by the time we got about, I think, two-thirds of the way through Conquest, we had enough of each other, my brother and I, and we just started throwing punches in the theater. <laughs> eventually got kicked out. And to this day, I mean, it's been, whatever, 35, 40 years since that happened. And uh, we talk about it, you know, every once in a while, and my mother rolls her eyes and, and still, still rues the day, saying, you know, she sent us off to the movies, and she thought, I'm going to have this whole day free. And then about three hours early, the two of us came walking in, and not only walking in, but fighting. <laughs> <laughs> kind of a strange strange thing to have a nostalgic memory about but we still laugh about it no it's it's that kind of stuff that that makes the memory you know because I, I can remember still probably my most vivid memory of uh of et beyond the i think it was the very first time i saw it was with chris um i think it was the second time that i saw it was with my sister and the and the vivid memory i took away from that was it was the very first movie she'd ever gone to see and she was all of five years old. And my sister was, I mean, very, very tiny for her age. She's still really small, but she was like super tiny. She was so small and so light that she couldn't hold the theater seat down. So we go into the theater and we sit down and I hold the seat down for her. She sits down and when I let go of the seat, she folded up like a, you know, like a card table, you know, just, you know, just crunch right up. <laughs> So I literally had to hold the theater seat down through the entire movie. And by the time that movie was over, my arm was killing me. And that's what I remember taking away from, from Holly's first movie. My sister's first movie <laughs> was, was a sore arm from holding the, the chair down. But it's that kind of thing that, you know, like, like I say, I think it, it makes the memory. Yeah, I agree. But I'm so jealous that that you actually got to see uh, not only the original uh, Apes movie in the in the theater, but you know all of them. That that's awesome. Because I mean, other than the the latest one, you know the the Rise, that's the only one I've ever seen actually in a theater. I would love to see the original Apes movie, you know, on the big screen. I think that would be great because that's that's and, such a fantastic movie. Yeah, I agree. I mean, then. I, I forced my son to sit down and watch it with me one day, and, and he he enjoyed it. But when I said, you know, there's four sequels, I thought he'd be right on board. And he was like, yeah, that's nice. And then he went and played video games. <laughs> that but sounds he, very he, familiar to me. Yeah, he went to see Rise with me, and he loved it too, though. So I think, you know, he's he's not as overtly a fan as I am, but he's he's on board. I think those movies, for the most part, you know, so select movies in that series, I think, are, are a perfect example of something old school that you can present to your kids. And they may initially roll their eyes and go, oh, God. But then 15 minutes later, they're glued to it, you know, because it's, mm -hmm. it's stuff that really overcomes the limitations of, you know, special effects and makeup effects. And, th you know, it really overcomes the limitations of the time in which it was made because... It's just it's gripping science fiction, you know. It's it's really good commentary style science fiction, and that's what I've always taken away from it. Because I used to, uh, you know, because the original Planet of the Apes film, believe it or not, it's rated G. So mm. when I used to work in video stores, I used to put it on our playlist all the time because it was one of the few movies that was actually approved because it was rated G. And I would throw it on the playlist, and people, I'd have the same reaction from customers. They'd walk in the store, and they'd look, and they'd go, what is this movie? That, oh, it's, oh, this is Planet of the Apes. And they'd go, oh, Christ. And five minutes later, I'd look, and, and they, they were just standing there, not shopping, just glued to the monitor, actually watching the movie. And I'm like, see? It's a great movie. You know? It, it really yeah. is. You know, you can, you can have that initial chuckle over the, 
the concept or the makeup effects or whatever, but I'm telling you, the story sucks you right in. It's it's really, really good science fiction. I've never been able to get my wife to sit down and watch it. <laughs> and I probably never will be. I would say try try to get her with the with the latest one because you know I, I thought Rise was phenomenal. I really did. Oh, so did I. I. I really, really enjoyed it, and I'm I'm really curious to see where they're going to go with the next one. Is that confirmed? Is there going to be a next one? Uh, well, I remember when you know when last year when Rise was out, they were definitely talking sequel, but I you know I don't I haven't heard anything about any production or anything. Right. So I I don't know if they have a script or, you know, where they are in the, in the scheme of things. But it was I mean it was a pretty pretty big hit as far as uh you know making its money and then some so i would was imagine it? I, that's at least what i understand see, i don't that's, have any numbers I, in front of me yeah that's what i was going to ask is see i know that critically it was a big hit you know it was very popular with both the fans and the critics but i wondered how it how it did actually financially because at, at the end of the day that's what really you know determines these things as far as sequels and stuff like that I yeah. thought it had done well, but I again, like you, I don't, I don't have any figures in front of me either. But I, I thought that I heard that it had done very well. It got great word of mouth, which you would think would translate into, uh, you know, decent box office receipts. I know when I went, uh, you know, the theater was packed. I'm trying mm-hmm. to punch it up right now while while we're talking about it to see if I can find something here. Domestic total gross, $176,760,185. Wow. Produ- production budget, $93 million. Oh, it more, it would, uh, almost doubled its money then. So, yeah, I would, I would say that that was a success. And that's just domestically because there's also, you know, whatever oh, yeah. they did overseas plus yeah. the DVD. DVD, yeah. So yeah. I'm, sure, I'm sure, you know, they raked in the cash and they're going to do a sequel. I hope so. I hope so. I, ho- I hope... That they not only do one, but I hope that it doesn't um, end up suffering the same fate as the original series. Is uh, you know each subsequent sequel, they kept scaling back and scaling back, so that by the time you got to to battle, it look that's why that movie looks the way it does, and that's why it feels like there's a, a movie missing in between conquest and battle because essentially there is the the big apocalyptic movie we never got you know and that's the important chapter between those two stories is the apocalypse and we don't mm-hmm. get it you know we get the lead up with conquest and then we get the post apocalypse with battle but you don't actually get you know the the big you know world destroying whatever happened in between and that that, that to me is why i I've, I've never i you know as much as I, you know, enjoy certain ones and dislike other ones in this series, Battle's the one where I just, I can't watch that one. It, it, to me, it's like, because, you know, the production values are so bad on that one. But, it, you know, it wasn't really the film's fault. It was just the studio by that point, just, you know, they were like, look, you know, we're, we're going to put a buck 95 into this, you know, because we, you know, it's diminishing returns by that point, and which, which is a shame. It really, it could have been better than it, than it turned out to be. I saw I saw an interview with uh, John Landis, and uh, he actually had an acting role in Battle. And uh, he was talking about how uh, he was on the set, and uh, John Huston played the lawgiver. Mm-hmm. And he was he was like, oh, you know, John Huston's such a great actor and you know great director and. He approached him, and he, you know, he he was basically saying, you know, why would a man of your reputation take on this role? 
And basically, I don't, you know, to paraphrase it, John Houston's answer was just, you know, you don't turn down a paycheck. <laughs> I'm looking here. I'm just looking online while we're talking, and I see uh, Andy Circus Cir- has already signed on for a sequel. Now, is that the the CGI guy that does yes. uh, Caesar? Yes. Oh, cool. I thought he did a great job in that movie. Well, I mean, when you you think about the, uh, you know, the fact that the CGI character was able to convey such emotion mm-hmm. through its acting, uh, you know, I mean, that that all comes from him. So, yeah, I, I, it, it's almost like they should have some sort of special Academy Award for that type of performance. You know, a, right. a non like like a non traditional performance Academy Academy Award because. You know, he certainly would deserve that. Absolutely. Well, I thought the uh, I thought the CGI in that was just about flawless. So about the only movie or about the only moment in the movie where uh, it it still looked a little a little CGI ish to me was uh, when young basically like baby Caesar was was swinging through the house, <clears throat> excuse me, up through the house and up to the attic. That still looked a little wonky to me, but the rest mm-hmm. of it was just, I, I mean, I, I just looked at that and said, okay, I, you know, they, they finally convinced me that, you know, this, this CGI stuff is, you know, that, that they're, they're getting to a point of flawlessness where you can't tell. I, I was impressed with that. I only had one pet peeve with the movie. What was and, that? And it, it's, it's a nitpick. So, uh, you know, you, you can, you know, it's really, I, I mentioned this to someone, and they were like, "You mean you could believe that apes take over the world, but you don't believe this?" You know, so it's definitely a nitpick. But I, I was like, I, I was questioning how could they not know that Caesar's mother, Bright Eyes, was pregnant and gave birth? Right. Yeah. Yeah. How, how could you have an ape handler who is taking care of her? They're giving her this medication. How could you not have realized if she was fully to term at that point? How could you not realize that she was pregnant? Right. Until you found the baby in her cage. Well, the worst seemed... part about that moment, too, is that that wasn't even a way homer for me. That was something that jumped out during the course of the movie. Right, you know, In the scene where they find the baby, I remember having that exact thought, which that's not good when that happens in a movie like that. The mm-hmm. Usually, you know, geeky nitpicks like that is something that will come to you later as you, you know, analyze the movie uh, you know, on your way home or something. But no, I remember thinking that at the time. But thankfully, it, it it didn't pull me out of the movie enough to you know to to spoil the movie for me or anything like that. But yeah, the the only really nitpick I had about it, and it was kind of it was kind of an acceptable thing for me, you know, actually going into the movies. I I, I had to kind of come to the to the acceptance that while it can work as a prequel to the first movie, if it does, then it negates the other movies in the series, which is kind of a shame. But, you know, as, as the only other one that I really am a fan of is escape, then, you know, I, I can come to accept it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Cause I, I don't see how you can reconcile rise with, the the movies that come after well yeah I, w- with beneath you can because that's a sequel to you know to planet of the apes but the other ones you know because escape essentially goes back and tells you know the the whole origins of of how everything happened that movie can't really happen now i don't yeah. think well once once you have 
Cornelius, Cornelius and Zira being the mother and father of Caesar, you can't reconcile that with right. r- bright eyes being taken from the African jungles and being right. the mother of sequel of of sequel of Caesar. <laughs> right. So yeah, you, you basically have to write off the last three movies. Right. Which honestly, those movies after uh, after that one, you know, a- after. Well, beginning really with with escape and moving forward, those movies don't really reconcile with one another anyway. I mean, if you especially the scene, although I enjoy it, I really love the acting and the way it's portrayed in the movie. The scene where where uh, Cornelius lays out the future of of basically how the Planet of the Apes came to be totally does not jive with anything in the original movie because he's telling of. You know the the whole history as it was passed down to his people and all. It's like, wait a minute, your people didn't know that they you know came from from dumb apes and and that man used to rule the world. That was you know that was the whole basis of their society was right. that they didn't know that you know. It, it, and so him explaining the whole backstory and everything, it, it doesn't jive at all with uh, with the original movie. Now, did you uh, did you ever read the book? The the original Pierre Boulet one? Yes. No, no, I haven't. I, I read that back, you know, <laughs> oh, I don't know, 1972 or so. <laughs> so I don't have clear memories of it, but I do remember the story being very different mm-hmm. uh, than, than the movie that they ultimately made. Uh, like, some big differences is that the, so- the ape society was not as uh, backwards well, they had like they the cars movie. and helicopters and stuff. Yeah, didn't they? exactly. Yeah. They had, you know, they had motorized vehicles. Uh, they didn't have the Twilight Zone ending to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't really remember like the whole build up on it because it's been so many years since I read it. But it was definitely very different, and and Rod Serling, you know, changed it around a lot. I have and, a and, copy of it somewhere, and I also have it on audiobook. And I started listening to the audiobook one time a couple years ago, and I, I didn't make it very far into it before I... I, I kind of lost interest. For one, I, I quickly realized that, no, this does not remotely resemble the movie, which I really, really love. But also the uh, the narrator, who I, I have no idea who it is, he was really annoying. So, yeah, I, di- I didn't make it very far through it. Mm. Somewhere I have the uh, the novelization of um, of Escape, and I've always meant to read it, and I, I still to this day have not read it. But I always love the picture on the cover of the book because it was uh, it was done uh, like a, like an old sky, like an old style photograph where Zira is sitting in a chair or a rocker holding the baby, and Cornelius is standing behind her, and it just it's so bizarre looking because it does it looks like some old timey photograph you'd see hanging in your grandma's house or something, except it's <laughs> apes. You know, it's, it's really cool. <laughs> That's, I know the picture you're talking about. That was actually one of the movie posters. Mm-hmm. That, that particular uh, shot. Yeah. I think it's the cover of the soundtrack album too, if I'm not mistaken, or at least one of the, one of the more recent releases, I believe really good soundtrack on that one. It took me a while to, to, to come to really like that one. Cause it's very, it's by, uh, Goldsmith, who scored the original movie, but it's completely different and very, very 70s. But uh, I've come to really, really like it because it's very 70s. Mm. But I love I love that movie. As a matter of fact, I was just watching a little bit of that yesterday, watching uh, 
because after I read uh, the the adaptation again, there were certain scenes I was I was itching to go back and watch because it's been a couple of years since I've watched it, and I went back and I was watching it, and you know we we did a. I don't know if we did a show about it or if we just talked about it at some point on Two True Freaks. We we had a conversation about, you know, here we are, big tough macho guys, but you know, movies that could that could make us cry. And I totally forgot to mention Escape from the Planet of the Apes. The end of that movie makes me bawl. Like oh, a that's, little that's girl. a depressing ending. It's it, it it is one of the most depressing movie endings ever. And I, I don't want to spoil it for anybody who who may have never seen it, because I'm really hoping that, you know, if you haven't ever seen it. Go out, check it out. If you can get past the the you know the seventies, you know damage to the movie, it, it, it stick with it. It's a phenomenal science fiction movie. But the ending of that movie, if if you don't if you don't at least get choked up by the end of that movie, then you just don't have a heart because it it is mm-hmm. such a sad ending to that movie. I mean, every time I watch, it, I'm like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> now the, the the interesting thing on that one for me is. Uh... Dr. Ha- Dr. Hasline in that movie, yeah, uh, is uh, played by Eric Braden, who to this day is still a big star on The Young and the Restless, yep, which, my, and which the my, li- my wife loves. Well, he was uh, John Jacob Astor in uh, in Cameron's Titanic too. Yes, yes, yeah. that's right. Yeah, uh, and uh, whenever I see uh, my old buddy Paul Smith. Uh, it, there's always a good chance that we'll go into the whole a man painting a picture of a man painting a picture. That, that whole speech that Dr. Hasline gives. It gives. goes nowhere, dude. It doesn't explain a goddamn thing either. That's what but I love about that. <laughs> but what's missing? The artist himself. So we pull back. <laughs> yeah, that's it. It really doesn't explain anything. It's funny, too, because I, I remember, I'm pretty sure it was me and Chris that were watching it one time, and we were watching that scene, and it gets to the end of the scene, and we looked at each other and were like, did that make any freaking sense to you? And it's like, no, dude, I, he was just, just some bullshit. I don't know what he was talking about. It, it's hilarious because he, he sounds like he's really going somewhere with that story and it totally doesn't go anywhere at all. It's just, it's, it's worse than like Deanna, Deanna Troy's psychobabble. It just doesn't mean anything at all. <laughs> Deanna Troy's psychobabble. Uh, yeah, Captain, I, I, I think he's agitated. Well, no shit. <laughs> no shit. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. I needed a psychic going here to tell me that. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> well, that movie's got geek connections all over the place because uh, I always liked. Um, oh, shit. Now I'm going to blank on the actor's name, but the guy that plays the president in that was uh, uh, William Wyndham Decker. Yeah, yeah, he was Decker in um, the Doomsday Machine. Yes. And then uh, I was watching. Uh, because this month on, on Two True Freaks is uh, King Kong month. So I was watching the uh, 76 Kong. Mm-hmm. And every time I ever watched that movie, it would drive me nuts, the captain of the, of the boat in that one. Every time I'd look at him and go, I, I, where do I know this guy from? And then it hit me. He was the guy that leads the initial um, congressional or whatever, a senator hearing or congressional hearing or whatever, when Zira and Cornelius come back in time and oh. escape. That John Randolph. Is that his name? I'm pretty sure that's his name. He's an older, like, ball-headed. He kind of looks like Captain yes. Steubing from The Love Boat. Yes, John yeah. Randolph. Yeah. yeah. And then... The, uh, it's the, the, the head, whatever he is, senator or whatever, congressman. And uh, Dr. Milo was uh, Sal Minio from uh, Rebel Without a Cause. Ah, that, that one's lost on me. I know the movie you're talking about. I don't, you know, I don't think I've ever actually seen that movie. 
one of these days I got to get around to that. It's got a Natalie Wood in it, doesn't it? Yes, Natalie Wood, J- yeah. uh, James Dean, and Selminia. And hmm. uh, I, I'm pretty sure Dennis Hopper plays a, like a thug, but it's a small part. He's like you know like a backup. Thug. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, and uh, but it was I saw that you know back in college in a film class, and uh, it is it is a classic. I would recommend it. It's also got. Um, Walsh, Jim J- 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 T. Walsh, or Jay, oh, really? you're, you're talking about yeah, you're talking about Robert, Robert Scott. Yeah, I think Jim we're, we're going Rebel like without a cause, father. and we're back to Escape from the Planet of the Apes. Yeah, who did J T. Walsh play? Is is he's the? I think I'm thinking of the right guy. He was like the the little short kind of chubby guy that was in like every single movie in the '70s, right? Uh, and that J T. Walsh. Now I'm not sure if I'm thinking of the right guy myself. Because he was in Slapshot. He was in. Uh, Raise the Titanic. He's been, he was in like a million movies, but he was always like a little bit part or a little bit character. But he's in there right at the beginning of the movie when uh, when they go out to the beach to to meet the the spaceship. He's wearing glasses. He's one of the military guys. I'm pretty sure that's his name, J.T. Walsh. I'm thinking that's not the right guy. Is it not the right guy? I just sent you an entry on J.T. J. Walsh. Let's see here. This has got to be riveting podcasting. Right <laughs> yeah, no, his J.T. Walsh started in 1985. His no, 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 you're right. No, this is this is the guy from Dark Skies. No, I'm thinking of somebody completely different. Oh, what? That's going to drive me crazy. Oh well, I'll save it for when we actually get to our. Uh, <laughs> when we get to our actual Planet of the Apes coverage, because I'll end up sitting here doing the whole show if we uh, keep yeah, going. Yeah, if we keep going, way. you're not going to have anything left for Planet of the Apes week. You're right. You're right. Well, like you say, also, if, if <laughs> this is riveting podcasting for anybody that came in to t- hear us talk about comics. Hey, you guys said you wanted more Back to the Bins. Here you go. Damn it. Don't complain. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I'm going to go ahead and dive into what I brought this time around. And uh, I got what I thought was a humdinger. This was chosen completely at random, and uh, I was pleasantly surprised by it. This is Captain America. And uh, this was at a time when it was, uh, uh, the cover called it Captain America and the Falcon, although the indicia never actually changed on the book. This is Captain America and the Falcon, number 154. This is the October 1972 issue, 20-cent cover price on this. Fantastic cover. I'm not sure who this is on the cover. I think I think it's Sal Buscema because he's the interior artist. But it's a great shot, a classic shot of Cap with his teeth gritted and his fists all clenched. And he's running at us, the reader, as behind him... The uh, Falcon, who looks very oriental for some reason in this pose, he's reaching out to grab Cap. And the Avengers are attacking Cap from behind. You've got the Vision flying at him saying, Avengers assemble! Captain America must be captured or destroyed. You've got Iron Man reaching out for him. You've got uh, the Scarlet Witch running after him. And then you've got Hawkeye in that just pansy-ass-looking Cupid outfit that he wore around this time. And, um, you know, I know he's a dude and everything, but he's got the worst case of camel toe I think I've ever seen in a comic book uh, cover. It's just embarrassing. Um, I'm pretty and then, sure that's, that's Buscema, like you said, and I think it might be inked by Romita. 
Could be. Could be. You've got uh, the Falcon saying, "Stop him! It's a matter of life or death." I just—he's got that weird-looking mask that really does make him look. Uh, I don't know. He looks like one of those, almost like those bizarre, like uh, racial stereotypes that you know, the unflattering ones they would do, like back in the '40s and stuff. Like you know, the big, over-exaggerated, slanted eyes and the gritted teeth and all. He just—he looks really freaky looking. And the perspective is a little bit wonky because it's it's supposed to look like he's reaching out to grab Cap, but instead it looks like his right arm is just <laughs> ginormously bigger than the rest of his body. It's pretty funny. And uh, the story on this one's called "The Falcon Fights Alone," and it's uh, presented by Stan Lee. It's uh, written by Steve Englehart, art by uh, Sal Buscema, inked by John Vir Virpurten. Uh, John Costanza known, is the letters. Known as Jumbo John Verport. Jumbo John. <laughs> John Costanza letter and uh, Roy Thomas does the edits on this. And it opens up to a really cool splash page of a very weird looking captain. He's, he's like eyeless in this. He, he almost looks like one of those demon doppelganger things from like the like the Infinity, whatever that was, storyline. But he's knocking the daylights out of the Falcon, just roundhousing him and knocking him to the ground while Bucky caps uh, partner, Bucky stands arms akimbo in the background, smiling as, as cap does this. And they've basically ganged up on the Falcon and they beat the tar out of him. And, uh, the Falcons Falcon, is it Redbird at this time? They, I don't think they red, have red wing, red wing. That's it. Do they actually name him in this story? I missed that part. If they did uh, anyway, I'm not sure. He comes down to try to defend the Falcon and uh, distracts Cap and Bucky just long enough that the Falcon can rally and he knocks Cap back and uh, he looks like he's actually trying to flee the scene when Bucky says, uh, he says, I can't worry about you, he says, till I've got this colored creep for slugging Cap and he's talking about the bird. And when he calls Falcon a colored creep, Falcon gets pissed. He says, what did you say? And he goes and he <laughs> dives at Bucky and slams him to the ground. It's hilarious. In the meantime, this is all taking place in uh, Harlem, by the way. And uh, these two little black kids come running into the alley to see you know, what's all the commotion. And they see Falcon basically engaged in a battle for his life against Captain America and Bucky. And uh, Cap throws his shield at the Falcon at one point and Falcon ducks. And when the shield bounces off a wall, it actually badly dents the shield. So Falcon knows that something's up. Well, eventually he gets clobbered and knocked down by uh, cap and Bucky and they make off with him. He's unconscious and cap scoops him up and, and they make off with him. And these two kids witness this. So they run out into the street to try to recruit help. Well, first they go to find one of the kids, they, they want to go find his Uncle Sam to tell him about what's going on. Well, Uncle Sam is Sam Wilson, who actually is the Falcon. The kids don't know that. So they go and they, they find the first uh, guy that they can find. They ask him for help, and the guy's like, yeah, right, you know, the Falcon, he's an Uncle Tom, piss on him and everything. And then another guy overhears him saying this. He's like, hey, come on, man. You know, the Falcon's done a lot more for this neighborhood than you ever did, and basically shames the guy into joining this little group. So they... They get together a, a bunch of guys, about, oh, what is it, about six or eight guys, and they decide, all right, all right, we're going to go and, and see if we can rescue the Falcon. 
In the meantime, it cuts to the Caribbean, and Cap is there, and he's vacationing with uh, with his girlfriend, Sharon. Now, this would be Sharon Carter, right? Yep. And uh, they're there, and it's great. They have this moment where they're walking along, and they're arm in arm, and they're talking on the beach as they walk by, and this big, burly, kind of like uh, Fabio-looking dude just totally walks over to Sharon and like grabs her by the wrist. And he's like, you know, you don't want to be with that wussy. You want to be with me. Cause I'm a real burly man. <laughs> she throws him to the ground. So the guy gets pissed and charges at him all Hulk style and everything. And the, and the cap just picks him up and like throws him and knocks the guy out. But what's hilarious about this sequence is she makes a, a comment here. She goes, you dumb jock. She goes, you've been reading too many ads about kicking sand in people's faces. Well, like three pages prior to this was the classic. <laughs> was the, <laughs> the classic insult Charles, that made a man out of man. Yep, the Charles <laughs> Atlas ad that she's actually referring to. I thought that was hysterical. I'm sure that was completely unintended, but uh, I thought that was great. So we cut back to uh, the warehouse where Cap and Bucky have taken uh, Falcon. They've got him tied to a chair, and Cap's just like slapping the crap out of him, trying to get him to tell him where the other Captain America is. So now we know that, uh, that this is not really Captain America. Cause of course, you know, we also, we saw the real cap, you know, Steve Rogers in the Caribbean on vacation with his girlfriend. So what is the story? What's going on? Who the hell is this other Captain America and Bucky? And while caps beating the tar out of the Falcon, there's a knock at the door. Bucky goes to answer the door. And when he does that gang of toughs, that have come to rescue the Falcon. They come charging into the room. They beat the crap out of Bucky. And uh, they're, they're not really much of a challenge for Cap, but they provide enough of a distraction that the Falcon is actually able to break free. And uh, they, they are able to do enough to where, for some, I'm trying to remember, why the hell does Cap flee this fight? Because he's not really losing to these guys. Oh, it's because Bucky got knocked out. That's what it is. He wants to rescue Bucky. So he scoops up Bucky and they they charge out of the room. So they leave. Still kind of weird though because th- these guys were not a challenge at all for for Captain America. He was mopping the floor with them up until the point where uh, where the Falcon freed himself. But anyway, he, he runs off with Bucky, and the Falcon thanks the guys for you know thanks for saving my life. You know thanks for providing this distraction and setting me free and everything. And Cap decides that or excuse me Falcon rather decides. He's got to alert the real Cap and let him know what's going on in this situation. So at this time, and this is what I thought was really interesting, I'm not at all familiar with this era of of Cap. I've really read precious little of it. And I really was not familiar with the origins of the Falcon. So this was at a time Falcon didn't even fly yet. He didn't have the, the glider wings and all that yet. He actually well, that came about 10 issues later. Oh, okay. He was actually... The uh, Black Panther developed those wings for him. Oh, did he? Oh, okay. See, I, d- I didn't know any of that. By the time I met the character, he was pretty much fully you know, developed as, as pretty much the character he still is today, you know, with the glider wings and all that. And I never, uh, I never really went back and, and never really knew his origins. He jo- just had always kind of been there, you know what I mean, by mm-hmm. the time I came into it. So this was neat to see him where... He looked essentially the same. His his mask is a little bit goofy. It's you know it, it would get kind of 
streamlined later on, you know, where it wouldn't have the really weird, exaggerated, like, like, I don't know if this is supposed to be like hawk eyes or what it is, but it's, you know, with the, like the slanted eye slits and all that and the bird nose, it, it just looks kind of bizarre. And he's only got just the one glove because, of course, it's the glove that, that the hawk lands on or, you know, the falcon lands on when it lands on his on his hand. So he has one of those. I, there's a name for those. I can't think of what it's called. But he only wears just the one glove. So I thought that was cool. But instead of flying, he actually shoots out like a like a talon-shaped grapple and grapples around the city kind of like Batman. I, just, I thought that was really cool. And... Uh, there's this great scene where he's doing kind of a Batman sort of shtick where he's roughing up all these people and everything, trying to track his way to what the hell is he after? <laughs> this is what I get for not having a pre-written synopsis on this. <laughs> he's roughing these guys up to try to find out. Oh, he's trying to find out who the imposter is, but none of these guys know anything. And they finally, he finally tracks his way to, this mobster guy. What the hell does he go to see this guy for? He goes he's, to he's, see. He look, He wants to know who rented Tyler's warehouse from him. That's right. That's right. He's trying. That's right. That's how he's trying to f- track down the fake Captain America because he's trying to. That's right. Thank you. You just saved me on that one. Totally could not remember. Not a problem. And we get to this Jack Kirby looking dude, Mister Muldoon. Now that that is, uh, he's actually at this time Steve Rogers was on the police force, right? And Muldoon is his sergeant. Oh, okay, all right, I got you. Yeah, this I could tell that this was a little uh, continuation of some sort of subplot that was already running in the book, and I couldn't quite make heads or tails of it. Other than there's the footnote where the the one cop says, you know, if my partner Rogers, and there's a footnote down at the bottom that, you know, that he's talking about Cap and his secret identity. And then I got to thinking, I thought I had heard like in, you know, like uh, the Marvel handbook, I had read something about Cap at one time had been a, uh, a police officer. But again, you know, not really being familiar with this era, I wasn't sure exactly what the whole story was here. So Falcon finally does... What I kind of felt like he should have done at the very beginning of this whole thing, he <laughs> decides he's going to get a hold of Cap, which was like, why didn't you do that in the first place? I mean, I could see why he wants to track down the fake Cap, but why wouldn't he want to alert the real Cap first? So he finally yeah, gets absolutely. out the horn and he calls around. And what's weird is this one scene, he calls and it doesn't identify the person that he calls. He just he calls somebody and the guy answers the phone and he says, I'm afraid... Mr. Rogers and Miss Carter uh, left for Mosca K. And it it looks like, I, initially I thought that this must be Jarvis, and I thought, well, that really doesn't look like Jarvis at all. But then the next thing he does is to actually go to the Avengers mansion, and you see, well, no, that's not Jarvis, because he's drawn completely different. I guess this could be somebody at uh, you know, uh, Sharon Carter's place. Actually, now that I look at it, he almost looks like he's supposed to be like a concierge at a hotel or something because there's like some sort of like mail bin or something behind him. Yeah, that's what it looks like. So maybe they were already like staying together at some hotel or something and then they moved on to the Caribbeaners. I really, I don't know what's going on in this part. But anyway, not important. He eventually goes oh, you to... Know, you know what I think it is? What's that? Because it's, it's in the... Uh... In the notes, it says uh, that it's a long-distance connection. 
So I think he's calling the hotel in the Caribbean. Oh, yes. Okay. Yep. That makes sense. That makes sense. Okay. So he goes to uh, Avengers Mansion to alert the Avengers of the fake Captain America. And while he's telling him this story, <laughs> the Vision walks in and says, Fake Captain America? Well, there was just a Captain America here just a minute ago that you know relieved me on monitor duty. So they all run in, and the monitor room's now empty, and but it's tuned in on the lounge that they were all just in a minute ago while uh, the Falcon was making his announcement about the fake Cap. So now they know that the, the fake Cap knows about him and that he's on their trail and everything. So at the end of the story, basically, the Falcon is setting out to... Uh, to track down this fake Cap, and he's going to race to uh, to where Cap is to let him know, you know, about this fake Captain America and that, you know, he's in danger and everything. That was probably the worst synopsis I've ever done. <laughs> but again, it's the nature of the show. It's just off the cuff. Long story short, I dug the hell out of this. Um, I know who the fake Cap is, and I know who the, the fake Bucky is, only because, you know, I, I'm familiar with who the the fake Bucky goes on to be later on. But I was really intrigued by this issue. You know, it's weird when you know a story, but you've never actually read it. You know what I mean? You you know the Mm -hmm. whole history without really knowing it, you know, because you've never actually delved into the story before. I was really intrigued by this. Intrigued enough that I'm actually going to read the the whole arc. I did a little bit of homework on this before we got started, and it's, it's really an arc that just runs between... Um, 153 to 156 is basically the the whole, you know, the whole thing with this story. I want to read the whole thing now, and uh, and really get a feel for the whole story because my introduction to this uh, this fake Bucky came in. Um, Try to remember the issue number. I, I want to say it was 281. I think where. The real captain, you know, Steve Rogers, he, he's in his apartment and there's a knock on the door and he answers the door and he's like, hey, Cap, how's it going? And I'm Bucky. And Cap attacks the guy and mm. they, they get into this fight and Cap's like beating the crap out of him. And basically Cap goes nuts because by this point, you know, there had been a number of attempts by by villains and just different people to uh, use the whole Bucky thing against him and Cap's just fed up with it with all these fake Bucky's and and people trying to impersonate Bucky and, and basically toying with his emotions. And there was a great moment where where uh you know the this Bucky just says, No, 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 wait. He goes, you know, you got you got me all wrong. He goes, I'm I really am Bucky. I'm the Bucky of the nineteen fifties. And then that's when Cap's like Bucky of the nineteen fifties and it goes into the whole explanation of, you know, while the real Cap was on ice and frozen, you know, in between World War II and when the Avengers revived him, that there had actually been another Captain America and Bucky in the 50s, you know, and, and that's right. basically who these guys turn out to be. I always loved that story. I always thought that was really neat because, again, it was the whole world building thing of, you know, me not being terribly familiar with Cap history prior to when when i got into the character in the early 80s as a kid i loved getting these snippets of his backstory and this was a huge one you know this this whole thing with the and that was the beginning actually of a retcon you know that i wasn't even aware of to me that's just how the story was and it wasn't until reading up on it later that i realized oh okay you know that this really happened 
you know, and then this is the writer being very creative and retconning that stuff into continuity. And I, I thought that was really clever. And that was one of the reasons I always gave the the Jack Monroe character a, a really big pass because, yeah, he went on to become a pretty lame character, but I liked him because of that, you know, that origin. You know, to me, that was the origins of the character was that that story where he just showed up on Cap's doorstep and then this goes back, you know, to, to showing, no, this is where he actually comes from. You know, this is how he was brought into, you know, quote unquote, present day continuity. And I, I enjoyed it. I thought it was a lot of fun. And he goes on to become the Nomad. Nomad. Mm-hmm. Now, are you, are you familiar with the issues where Steve Rogers was Nomad? Vaguely. Um, I've read up to the point where Cap quits. Right. And I don't think I've actually read... Uh, enough into it to where he actually adopted the the nomad identity but again it's one of those stories where i i'm familiar with it you know through other sources you know like like uh like um i keep wanting to say who's who you know the uh official handbook and stuff like that you know so i I know the the history without having actually read the the issues themselves and again i was i was familiar with nomad because when I, i i'm not sure exactly what issues or what issue I jumped on Cap with, but I, you know, I did, I kind of discovered Cap right in that it was like just, just after Burn left, and um, I, I don't know who the writer was, but my, Mike Zek was the artist, and they had the stories like the Ameridroid and all that, mm-hmm. and one of the very next issues after that was the one where it shows Cap like rushing into the panel and he's being upstaged by this guy that says, Hey cap, I'm nomad or something to that effect. And caps thinking to himself, but, but, but I'm nomad. And that was my introduction to the nomad character. And in, in that story, it tells the whole backstory that, that nomad really had been cap. So again, you know, that's how I kind of know the story without ever actually reading the original story that comes out of. Yeah. Well, that, that all comes from the, uh, the story where basically uh, Richard Nixon ends up being the head of the uh, secret society, whatever the secret society right. is that he's fighting there, which they never actually say. It basically is unmasked, and you know Cap is disillusioned afterwards, mm-hmm. so he stops being Captain America, and then uh, Hawkeye talks him into, you know, he says, "If you're not going to be Captain America, it doesn't mean you can't be a superhero." Right. So he ends up saying, "Okay," and that's when he becomes Nomad. And uh, what ends up happening is somebody else takes on the identity of Captain America. A, young, a couple of people actually do and fail, but this relatively young guy takes on the, the role, and uh, Falcon takes him under his wing, and then the Red Skull attacks them, and when he realizes that it's not the real Captain America, he basically slaughters him. Ah. And, and you know Steve Rogers, or Captain America, or Nomad, is so appalled and moved by the what happened to this kid that he takes the, uh, he he retakes the identity hmm. so it was it was a pretty good story and and through the course of all this it, 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 there's a whole thing with the falcon that goes on uh the falcon was introduced in issue 117 and it's basically while cap is in hiding from the red skull while the red skull has the cosmic cube uh some people may know that as the tesseract uh and uh he he ends up coming it's like he's i think he's on a caribbean island at the time and uh he comes back to new york with him and he establishes his place in the in new york and then eventually around issue 133 or so he becomes 
his partner and it becomes Captain America and the Falcon. But in this same story arc where uh, Steve Rogers retakes the identity of Captain America, just as he's about to defeat the Red Skull, Red Skull uses some sort of triggering phrase or something that uh, basically makes the Falcon turn against him. And it turns out that the Falcon was like a sleeper agent you know, that was uh, put in there by the uh, Red Skull in the first place. And that he, you know, he hadn't been this nice, innocent guy that he was portrayed to be. He had actually been a criminal in his prior life. And, uh, you know, it all works out that eventually he, you know, regains his own free will and decides to act on part of good and him and Cap become partners again. But it was a real long, long-running storyline from 117 into like the 190s before this is all resolved. Hmm. What was the name of that... Avengers maxi series that uh, that like pulled Avengers together out of different time you know periods of time. Avengers and Forever. Forever. I don't know why I can never remember the name of that thing. Avengers Forever. For uh, <clears throat> excuse me. For about five minutes after I read that series, I was on a kick to try to collect the books that I lacked that were referenced in that. Mm-hmm. And one of them that I did score. Um, for very cheap was the um or no i'm sorry that wasn't it either i i, I got i'm trying to remember the sequence of it oh no I, okay what i got was i got the issue it's the one that shows cap wearing like a suit i think he's wearing like a blue suit and he's throwing down his shield and walking away and he so, says so you know something dramatic like you know screw That's this num- captain number America. 176 yeah I got that issue on the cheap right after I read Avengers Forever, and I'd never read it before, and I read it and loved it, but it was part of that story you're talking about with with Nixon and all that. Yes. And I was trying to track down the other issues, and I didn't realize at the time what a phenomenal deal that I got on that issue because all the other issues in that storyline or in that arc were, were really expensive, or at least at the time, you know, the way I was trying to get them. So I ended up tracking down the um, the Secret Empire trade paperback, and I got that for I want to say I paid like two or three bucks for that, which collects that entire story. But it ends. Um, I, well, I think the end it of ends one seventy five. Yeah, I think it ends with the reveal, you know, that you're talking about, and and then it was the next issue where Cap quits. So that's as far as I've read in in that portion of cap's life i never read beyond it into where he adopted the the nomad stuff but i'll tell you ever since um excuse me i have a frog in my throat tonight ever since uh you know the the avengers movie and then i I recently went back and rewatched uh the captain america movie again i've been on something of a captain america kick Mm -hmm. and uh i just started reading um um tales of suspense and uh, I think I'm gonna uh, I think I'm gonna read some cap for a while and try to get caught up on some of these you know holes in in my personal you know uh, connection with cap because I've read a lot of cap over the years but it's always been in 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 blocks and snippets you know story arcs and stuff I've never really you know read like start to finish in in any particular era and I kind of right. want to get caught up on that especially this area you know this era right here. Um, you know, that, that point between like the first few issues of cap, you know, when he moved out of, uh, 
moved out of Tales of Suspense and, you know, it became his own title. And, you know, the, the burn stuff, you know, just prior to where I came on with Zach and all that, there's that stretch right there of, you know, several years that I, I've read only the tiniest little portion of. So, you know, this, this was really cool to me to, to see the origins of, you know, the Falcon and stuff. like. I, I love stuff. I love when you can go back and, and discover this stuff that you think you know. And then you mm-hmm. find out, no, I really don't know this at all. You know, it's it, that's a lot of fun. Well, just to give you a little bit more of the soap opera stuff, uh, the uh, the guy who the kids approach to go and save the Falcon, mm-hmm. the that guy, uh, his name is Rafe, and yeah. the girl he is with in that scene is Layla, mm-hmm. and uh, Rafe and Sam Wilson were uh, were rivals for Layla's affection. Ah. So and you know Rafe Rafe isn't really a good guy, so that that's kind of like a little soap opera background on that one. I, I don't want to seem like I'm I'm profiling, but he kind of just the way he was introduced in, in the first couple of panels, he kind of gave me the impression that he was a pimp. But I yeah, he's know. kind of a pimp kind of guy. I mean, oh, okay. In the, in the <laughs> so 70s, I wasn't wrong. They don't then. quite go that far. Okay. But uh, you know what? I, I stepped into Captain America right during that Secret Empire story. That's why I, uh, you know, why I remember it so well. Uh, and you know, going back after back issues back then, which now we're talking only, you know, maybe a year, a year and a half before I started buying. Uh, but I, I had issues 155, 156, and 153, and it took me forever to get 154 that you did today. Uh-huh. For the longest time, I knew the story without having that middle issue. Yeah. See, that's the kind of thing I'm talking about is, uh, you know, that sometimes that can be, and I I think we talked about this in a prior episode, sometimes that can be a a very, um, that can be an experience that really lets you down. You know, when, you know, uh, know, the way that we collected comics as a kid were sometimes you would miss issues, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, again, you know, because they did that great thing back in the day of filling you in, you know, last time in Captain America... That you could actually, you know, you you could miss an issue. Sometimes you could miss an entire story arc or a year. Yet you could pick the book back up and very easily jump right back into the narrative. And so it gave you a false sense of knowing what happened in between the issues. Right. And sometimes, you know, most I find that most of the time when I go back and I actually track down, you know, a missing issue or a missing story arc or something like that, and then read it, I'm almost invariably let down. Because for one, you kind of knew what was happening anyway, because you read the rest of the story. So, you know, you didn't really, quote unquote, need that missing chapter because you <laughs> knew where, you know, where things went. But also it's just your your mind builds things up to be you know, something that, that typically doesn't turn out to be. So it's really cool when you do track down, you know, something like this and read it and go, wow, that was really great, you know, because I, I, I've just come to not expect that. I, I've come to expect, you know, a, a disappointment. And uh, this wasn't disappointing at all. It was a lot of fun. And and the cool thing about it is that um, it's not, your typical kind of story because the fights at the beginning of the story, it starts out with the fight and then it goes into a story from there. It's, it's kind of backwards from how comics were at this time. It's typically, 
you know, let me set things up. Let me introduce the villain. You know, let me give you a little bit of a story. Okay, fight. You know, and and then it resolves right. at the end with the with the villain being taken down. This one's told very backwards from that traditional kind of storytelling. I, I, again, because it's part of a chapter too. But that's neat. I, I like that. Um, seeing that not everything was was done in a cook, you know, a uh, cookie cutter uh, type of process. And you know that's that's one of the reasons, you know, Marvel deservedly got that reputation of you know great storytelling and and breaking the mold, especially you know during this era of the early '70s. This is a very different book from the type of stuff that uh, that DC would be doing around this same time. Well, surprisingly, considering the way this story went that you just recapped, uh, the Avengers really aren't involved anymore after this in the storyline. Right. You would think that that you know this was pulling him in, and they'd be involved the rest of the way. But right. they, they don't they don't even appear in a flashback anymore. Right. Uh, some some interesting stuff in in the next issue when they when they actually give you the origin of the other Captain America, they have I think two or three pages that are direct reprints from a 1950s Captain America issue, which hmm. is just kind of a, a strange thing to have in the middle of the story like that. Uh, and and the other thing just about it is. I'm noticing more and more when I was reading these things as a kid, I knew like the different writers' names, but I just kind of lumped them together in my mind. And I'm noticing more and more as we pull issues out, uh, as, as we're doing this and as I was doing those shows with uh, Bob Brito, uh, Steve Englehart uh, wrote a lot of my favorite stories of this era. And this is one of his. And this, this entire storyline right through the secret empire and all of that it's all steve Englehart uh, until jack kirby came back in 193 hmm. so i gotta give him a lot of credit he's one of those he, he wrote, I, i'm sorry that? i was just gonna say i think he's one of those very uh underrated I, I would almost say almost forgotten writers you know what i mean he's he's not a name that i hear thrown out a whole lot and he really is a phenomenal writer. He really has written some of uh, some of the best stuff of this time period. I, I think. I mean, my, my my favorite writers of this era would be Jerry Conway, uh, Steve Englehart, Len Wein, uh, and Marv Wolfman. Mm-hmm. And I think if you ask the average fan, they would probably put Wolfman and. Uh, Probably Wolfman and Ween at the high at the highest end, and I think it's unfair because I think Englehart is every bit as good as any of them. You know, Roy Thomas is put on another level because he was kind of like the successor to Stan Lee, taking over there, and then you had the next group. I heard an interview with Englehart recently, and he was talking about how when Stan Lee finally decided to step down and let Roy Thomas write the books, he as the editor was really pushing Roy to write them in the Stan Lee style. He wanted it to sound as if it was the same voice continuing. And then when Roy started to be the editor and the, and the next wave of writers came in, he said Roy had exactly the opposite position. He said, you know, if you're writing good stories and, and you're getting them in on time, I don't care what voice you're giving them in. And, uh, you know, he gave them a lot of freedom. And, you know, Steve Engelhardt was saying at the time, you know, he was a a young guy and he didn't realize quite how much that freedom meant until later on when, you know, it became much more controlled and, you know, with with different editors and things. And, and, you know, then he appreciated how he had it when he was young. 
And and one of one of the really interesting things that he was talking about, which I had no idea about, was in the I guess the late sixties, uh, Steve Englehart was in the I believe in the army. He was in the armed forces, mm-hmm. uh, and at the time he decided he wanted to get into comics, and initially he wanted to be an artist. Which I, I get the feeling almost everybody wanted to be an artist at one time. I don't know right. how many how many people actually grew up wanting to be the writers, you know. But but eventually, I think they just kind of settled into the writer ro- role when they realized that's where their skill was. But he ended up contacting Neil Adams, and became Neil Adams' first assistant. And it was while he was in the armed forces, he was in stationed like in Connecticut or someplace like that, and he would come into the city on the weekends and work with Neil Adams, and then go back for duty on, on, you know, during the week. And he said that Neil Adams insisted that he take a credit as an assistant, which was unheard of at the time, so that when he got out of the army and was going to ready to p- pursue his career, he would already have his foot in the door. That's which is awesome. pretty, yeah. yeah, pretty awesome thing. And now I, I, I had told you, I met Neil Adams last year at uh, the New York Comic Con, and I was very impressed with how friendly and, you know, willing just to sit down and talk he was. So, now he just stepped up an, an extra level with me when I heard that story. <laughs> now, I always heard that he was a, a straight shooter. Well, you know, he was uh, he was one of the big uh, uh, movers and shakers behind you know support you know getting renewed support for uh, for the creators of Superman, you know, in the seventies mm-hmm. oh, and all yeah. that. But yeah, I always heard that he was a, a, a big supporter of. Of basically the rights of the of the guys behind the scenes, you know, actually making the comics and all. Right. I heard something where uh, the the lawsuit that that just took place. I can't. Was it Tony DiZuniga? Or, no, that's the guy who passed away, right? Yeah. Uh, the the guy who sued for the the Ghost Rider rights. I can't think of who it was now. Tony Isabella, maybe. Could be. Yeah, you and, got and, me on that one. I'm. Tr- I was trying to. Th- I I remember kind of. You know, vaguely hearing something about that, but as a character, I never really knew or had much interest in. I, you know, I didn't pay much attention to it. So yeah, I, I'm struggling to try to remember who were the who were the creators of Ghost Rider, and I, I gotta, I gotta admit, I, I don't think I know. But there was there was the recent lawsuit about that, and uh, basically, you know, the Marvel struck back on it because they said, you know, not only are we going to retain the rights, but we're going to uh, basically prevent people from, you know, bringing these lawsuits, that they, they actually had uh, a, a countersuit against him. Oh, it's Gary Friedrich. So, oh, okay. I, yeah. My apologies to Tony Isabella and Tony DiGiorno. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> Gary Friedrich brought the lawsuit, you know, trying to get some royalties for Ghost Rider. And Marvel countersued, saying not only, you know, are we not giving you anything for creating him at this point, but we're, we want you now to pay us for using his image and making money on his image at Comic Cons, and they ended up winning a seventeen thousand dollar judgment against him. Wow! And 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 it was kind of like you know you let the sleeping dog lie. You know you don't you don't uh, <laughs> you you don't you don't start nudging it, <laughs> which is what he did. Uh, and, and a lot of the creators became very concerned about you know uh, when they're at Comic Cons and they're doing you know uh, images for money and you know. That they didn't want to have these companies turning around and saying you can't do this, or you got to give us a percentage of the money that you make. Uh, but I think it was purely retaliatory for him bringing that lawsuit. But my understanding is that Neil Adams was then, you know, helping to champion his fundraiser or whatever to make the money back, so that you know he wouldn't be uh, 
destitute because of this judgment against him. Wow, you know, I I, I got to be honest with you, dude. I, I have no idea how I feel about that because on the one hand, I feel like Wow, you know that's really dirty pool on the on the behalf of the company. But at the other on the other side, you know, I kind of see their point. You know that, you know, I don't know. I I, I kind of see where they're coming from too. So I don't know. That's that's a tough one. That's a that's a really tough call. What do you what do you think of that? Well, my my thought is if they are only doing this in response to the lawsuit, then I understand it and I really don't have an issue with it you know because because you know all these creative lawsuits my my thought is you know you're, you're doing work for hire and you know i work for a big company and i don't want to go into my company or anything but whatever work i do for them that's theirs right I mean, i'm not i'm right. not a creative person you know i don't i'm not in a creative business like that but if i came up with a system in my office for this is how we're going to do this I can't then turn around and sue them and say, well, I created that system. You got to, you know, give me money for it every month beyond my salary. Uh, so, so I really do have a problem with these people turning around and, and trying to have the proprietary rights to these right. characters. On the other hand, I do think they should be allowed to go to Comic-Cons and, you know, draw images and sell them. And, well, and, that's the part know. of it that, that I think that that's where I agree with the company. Because I look at it this way is that, yes... It must suck. It must royally suck to create something that becomes huge and worth a ton of money and all you ever saw from it was your regular paycheck or or a pittance or whatever it was that you saw from it, but you're never going to make another dime off of it. Except for what you can eke out at you know some comic convention somewhere doing sketches or telling your story or, or writing a book or whatever you know, but you're mm-hmm. never going to make a million off of it while somebody else may be raking in tens of millions off of it. Yes, that would blow. However, history, especially American history, is replete with stories of products that we you know that are household names that we use on a daily basis that have become part of our, you know, essential parts of our life where nine out of 10 of those things, the the person that actually came up with the idea died a pauper's death. You know, it it, it just sucks, but that's the way things are. I mean, I could be wrong, but I think Coca-Cola is that kind of story, isn't it? I mean, you know, here it is, the the number one beverage in the world. Everybody drinks Coke. I mean, the company's worth gazillions of dollars, but I'm pretty damn sure that the guy that actually invented the thing died penniless. I I could be wrong, but I mean, you know, insert any top brand here. You know what I mean? And and you've Mm -hmm. got a story like that. I think these guys... As as bizarre as it sounds, I think they've actually got it better than somebody like that because it's not like the guy that invented Coke could then go to a Coke convention and sell Coke and make money off of it, even though he never is going to see a dime from the actual Coca-Cola company. At least if you invented the friggin' Rainbow Raider and you're never going to see a dime out of it when they make the Rainbow Raider movie and it makes a zillion dollars, at least you can go to the convention and you can, you know charge 20 bucks to autograph your issue of, you know, Booster Gold Fights Rainbow Raider or something, or, you know, doing a head sketch or something, at least you've got that, you know? And And again, there's another side to that argument, too. What's that? Because let's just say I, tomorrow, I sit down and I create a character that goes on to become, you know, a worldwide phenomenon. 
but I contracted with Marvel Comics, and they they produce the comic, and they own the rights to it, and I get you know X number of thousand dollars for ownership of that thing, and they take over ownership, and now they make a million dollars or you know millions of dollars in the movies. You could look at that and say that sucks. You know, you got the raw raw, raw deal there, but on the other hand. I could sit down tomorrow and not have a deal with Marvel Comics and create that same character, and no one is ever going to see it because I'm never going to have the means to get it out there to the public and have it catch on and become that phenomena either. Right. So in the second scenario, I end up making less money on this great character that I just created. You well, know what I'm the- saying? I, I do, and I, I also wonder, I mean, are these guys, are, is there anything preventing them from... You know, let's say, uh, I'm trying to think of somebody that was in the Avengers that wasn't actually created by Stan Lee, and damn, I'm coming up dry. Um, say uh, say Jack Kirby and or Joe Simon were still alive. Is there anything to prevent them from going on Good Morning America and pimping the fact, you know, that, that Captain America dude that's in the Avengers? I created him, you know, and, and getting an interview and getting paid for it. Is there anything stopping them? I don't. I, I mean, I guess it would it would depend on the language of whatever sale contract that they had. Yeah, that's true. Well, you know, like Marv, uh, is it Marv Wolfman? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Marv Wolfman that created uh, created Blade. I mean, was there anything? I, I know that he sued the company and all that, but was there anything stopping him from making the the talk show circuit and promoting the fact that you know, yeah, you know, I created that character. And making some money because I'm pretty sure those guys. If you go on like Letterman or something, I'm pretty sure you get paid something for that, don't you? I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, I, I I'm sure that there are stars or, or people that go on there to promote a product, and that's the trade off for the interview. But your your average, you know, talk show appearance, I'm pretty sure they pay you for that, and I've heard that they pay you pretty damn good, depending on who you are and what your, you know, what your deal is. So, you know, at a time when, when the next big blockbuster comic book thing comes out, if they really wanted to talk the original creators, I would think that you would think that that'd have to be a decently paying gig, at least as much as a comic appearance somewhere, you know, a Comic-Con appearance somewhere, you would think. I, so, yeah, I would imagine. I don't know. You know, I, I, I both feel for them, but I also feel it's, it's kind of, I don't know, I th- it's tough to say because it's one of those things where what, what I'd also I think the ultimate resolution to that is that I think that I don't know I, again I, I this could be totally opening floodgates that would turn up you know that could end up really biting you know biting the companies in the ass but I, I think my initial gut reaction is that the company should do quote unquote the right thing. You know, if if you suddenly, you know, if all of a sudden some obscure comics character, suddenly they're the next, you know, big thing for some company. They're the big money maker. They're raking in the money. There's part of me that thinks the company has absolutely zero obligation. If you were work for hire to, to do anything for you, to acknowledge that, you know, the fact that you created this character and give you anything. However, you know, I, I, I run... I try to run myself very much on a, you know, you know, there's the law and then there's the right thing to do, you know? And, you know, if the company's raking in millions off of something like that, you know, I kind of feel like maybe the right thing to do is, uh, 
you know, cut Marv Wolfman a check for, you know, I don't know, $100,000 or something and say, you know, we, we appreciate that you created this character that we're making money off of. And at least, you know, offer that, you know, but may, maybe make them sign a deal that says, you know, we're, we're, we're acknowledging what you did for us. We want to give you this. However, in accepting this, you're also saying that, you know, I, I'm never going to come back and try to, you know, sue you for ownership or something. You know what I'm saying? Right, right. I, I don't know. I have no idea what the legal language of that would be or whatever. And my gut instinct is that they should do something like that. But I can see where even that would be. That could be something that would come back to really bite them in the ass, too, you know, because then that could be misinterpreted. I'm sure that there's some slick lawyer out there that could that could get that into a courtroom and, and, and convince a jury somewhere that, well, look, you know, by, by sending this check to Joe comic creator, they just acknowledge the guy created the thing. So why isn't he entitled to 50% of the profits rather than, you know, this check that they caught him kind of, th- I could, I could see that blowing up in their faces too. So maybe in the long run, the, it, it is in their best interest to just, you know, turn a blind eye to to the guys that originally created this stuff. But that it just somehow that seems just I don't know, not necessarily wrong. It just seems kind of cold. You know what I mean? Oh, it definitely seems cold. Yeah. And, and but and and I think, you know, in the original lawsuits that came up, uh, you know, with Superman and Batman and Captain America, I do think because only because they were highly publicized, not because these companies have uh a conscience or anything right uh, you know merely for public relations but i do think that they did compensate them beyond their legal obligation to com- compensate them but now i think you know when you get to gary friedrich suing for ghost rider and, and they're probably saying to themselves well you know we're not giving everybody a cut of everything we make we you know we bought these characters fair and square and you know that's right. that and right. that's why i think they decided to make an example of him you know, I can't say as I blame them for that because if if they didn't do it to somebody, then I think again, I think that what happens there is that potentially you set up a uh, you know a, a, a situation where the floodgates are going to open and everybody that ever created anybody, you know, for your company, and, and sees a potential, you know, dollar sign potential in that character that they start lining up, you know, but I think, I think, uh, you know, $17,000 is a drop in the bucket to, you know, Marvel comics slash Disney. Oh yeah. I'm sure they didn't give a shit about the money. It was, it was the principle of the thing is that they, Mm -hmm. by, by doing that, you know, they, they were just simply sending a message, you know, that, that we're not going to tolerate this anymore. If we decide to give you something, you know, we're we're doing it out of whatever, you know, the goodness of our hearts or whatever. But don't start, you know, looking to the, the to the seagulls and schusters, you know, th- that example as, okay, well, we better get in line and and start suing for, you know, something. I, I that uh, that's my interpretation anyway. I could be dead wrong, but that I bet you anything that's what they were going for with that. Oh, I'm, that I'm were, sure that's what they were going for. But yeah. I think the right thing to do at that point is okay, we have this $17,000 judgment against you. See what could happen when you sue us like this. Now, we're not going to enforce this because we don't give a shit about $17,000. And it's going to you know, really cripple you if we go after it. So right. you know, we'll have forget they? this, but let's never, have, let's never hear about it again. 
right. you know, that kind of thing. And and but I I think they did enforce it because that's where we got involved in this. You know, we're going full circle because I think Neil Adams was actually raising money to help him pay off that seventeen thousand dollar debt. Hmm. So they have actually pursued it. I don't know that for a fact, but I think that's my understanding at least. Jeez. Now that that part of it does seem a bit. That seems extreme and it seems harsh, but I don't know. I mean, as I say, you know, it, 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 they they probably were left with no choice. Eventually, you've got to, if you want to put a stop to it, eventually somebody's got to be made an example of. And it sucks that it was him, but then it would suck that it was anybody, you know? Mm-hmm. It, it, it would be, a, I mean, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't want to have to sit in judgment of that. You know what I mean? Because that's a really tough decision to make right there is, you know, what, what, what is the, the, the right and proper thing to do in a situation like that? I mean, I don't know. I mean, I remember watching the thing on um, 60 Minutes there a couple years ago where Stan Lee was suing Marvel and having really mixed feelings about it. Right. Because I remember some of the comments I remember seeing on whatever it was, a forum or something. I mean, there were, there were comments, some of them I thought were really crazy. There was one that, that has always stuck with me, and it was something to the effect of, this is really embarrassing. This, this is akin to Ronald McDonald suing McDonald's. And I thought... <laughs> I don't think that's a very appropriate analogy because at the end of the day, you know, Ronald McDonald didn't didn't take a failing company and make them everything that they are today. You know what I mean? I mean, everything that Marvel is today, they owe to Stan Lee because I think without him, I don't think Marvel would have survived the 60s. You know? Well, I really I'm willing, don't. I'm willing to parse out the credit as Stan Lee... And his collaborators, whether it be Jack Kirby or Steve Ditko, uh, you know, I, I do think it was a collaborative effort. I think you know all people right. are too quick to either give all the credit to Stanley or give none of the credit to Stanley, right? And, and and give all of it to Kirby and Ditko. And I, I think that's either way is unfair. I, I I do believe that it was a collaborative effort. That's definitely everything that I've picked up from reading you know, the different versions of things. I agree uh, with you that it was definitely a collaborative effort, but I, my point is I think if you take Stan Lee out of that equation, I mean, do you think that that just on the power of, of Jack Kirby and the others that, that Lee did collaborate with with these characters, do you think that they would have survived the six? I mean, do you think they'd be no, anything no, like they are today? Saying. No, I agree with what you're saying. And in fact, uh, what was it, two episodes ago when we did uh, Jimmy Olsen by Kirby? Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I thought that was an example of Kirby, you know, without Lee's influence right. on the story. And and while I, I still enjoy the story and I enjoy the concepts he came up with, I don't think it's as focused or as uh, I, I hate to use the word grounded because I don't think that's the right word. But but I, right. I just think it lacks a certain reality that that Stanley brought to the stories. Because, you know, Kirby had these far-out ideas, and he needed somebody to make it relatable. I think so, grounded, I think the, the reason you and I and Mike all hesitate to use that is it's got a very negative connotation with that god-awful Superman story, you know, of a couple <laughs> years back. But at the same rate, I think grounded is, is actually the perfect word to use, because I do think that that's what Stan, ultimately I think that's what he contributed to comics was 
um, making the you know these these really far out concepts palatable, you know. Whereas I think that's ultimately my my problem with like the the Jimmy Olsen story that you talked about. I think that's why I can't get past stuff like that. Is that somewhere in these really fantastic ideas, a lot of them, which, you know, are, are truly awesome ideas. It's somewhere in the telling of it. The, the, the fantastical is just too fantastical. It never gets reined in and grounded to a point where, where it's palatable to me. It's there's, there's just, it's something about it is just too far out there. You know what I mean? There's, Mm -hmm. there's nothing to bring it down to a base human level that I can identify with. It, it's all too cerebral, you know, cerebral, haughty, well, not even haughty so much as just, it, it's a little too out there, which I, and, and, and that's <laughs> what, know, I can't that's think of a better think, way to put it, you know? And that's what I think Lee brought to it. I think he, he took those ideas and he made them, I mean, he brought, you know, some of it was just, you know, treacly and, and, Soap opera y for lack of better terminology. Uh but but I he made it relatable. Right. And and that's what, what that's what really what Marvel in the sixties did, uh that DC wasn't doing at that time. And and that, that made it such a phenomenon and that's what made it grow beyond just the children's market. You know, that's when college students started reading comics. Right. Cause you could find characters in those books that had a human voice. And I think that's part of, maybe that's entirely what something like the Jimmy Olsen stuff lacked is someone that you can pick out of those stories and go, okay, I, I identify with that guy. He, he's speaking like real people speak, you know, because you could have a fantastic concept, like say, you know, look at the FF story where, where silver server and then Galactus come to earth very, very far out sci-fi Kirby concept, yet it's grounded by somebody like The Thing, who's just your average guy, you know? I right. mean, yeah, he's a big rocky monster, but at the end of the day, he talks like we talk, you know, like, oh, what a revolt in development this is, you know, stuff like that, you know? he He's able to kind of bring the 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 realism and the, and the kind of human element to that story by by just you know, simple everyday language. Whereas I, I don't see that in a lot of the other Kirby stories. It, it, it has a big high minded sci-fi concept, but not the, the, the relatable every man to kind of give you an identifier in the story. I, at least that I, I, I suspect that may be why I don't identify with a lot of his later stuff. I don't know. Yeah. Can't argue with that. <laughs> or at least I can't. I'm sure somebody can. <laughs> oh, somebody will. Ed Carter, so, he doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. So we going to do another issue? Yes. <laughs> okay. Because <laughs> we went kind of far afield there. We did. Uh, okay, well, today I brought to the table DC Comics Presents number 61. It's a September 1983 issue. Cover price is 60 cents. The cover, which I think is awesome is drawn by George Perez, shows a robotic figure from behind, and he's kind of split in half by like some sort of energy crackling. And on one side, there's Superman running towards him with some present-day buildings in the background, and on the other side, there's Omak running towards him in a futuristic setting, uh, and you could see 
through some windows above that Brother Eye, the satellite where he gets his power and, and information from, is up in the sky, in a starlit sky above him. It's written by Len Wein, illustrated by George Perez and Pablo Marco, Marcus, Marcos, and it's given an assist by Rick Hoberg, who I'm not familiar with. Letters are by John Costanza and colors by Gene D'Angelo, and it's edited by Julius Schwartz. The name of the story is The Once and Future Wars. The story opens with a scene of Omak kicking through a wall and entering a lab with some armed guards. The time is listed as the day after a thousand tomorrows. Omak starts to fight with the guards and realizes that there are more of them than he, than he anticipated, and he lets Brother Eye know that he's going to need more power. The satellite transmits some sort of power boost to him and provides him information as to where the target is. He bursts into another room where he's told that he's too late to stop them and that their pre-programmed assassin is in transit without any means of retrieval. We see the robotic figure that was on the cover and it's fading into a bright light. Omak jumps onto the figure and is transmitted with it. And the villains are there and they, they're wondering to themselves whether he followed the assassin or if he's lost in time. Then we cut to Brother Eye, who is shown to have lost contact with Olmec. The next scene is in the metropolis of the current day, which I guess, what I said, it was 1983? Uh, yep. Oh, yep. Okay. And they show some police in a standoff outside a liquor store that's being held up. There's an exchange of gunfire, and the robot appears within the liquor store, and it identifies itself as the Murder Mech Intercorp Death Droid, classification 42119. It asks where its intended victim is, which nobody knows, and it takes out one thug who shot at it and concludes that its victim isn't there and decides to seek him elsewhere. As he leaves, he or it leaves, it causes a wake of destruction, which Superman notices, and he approaches and is attacked by the robot. Uh, this is the pre-crisis Superman, so he's more powerful and the attack really doesn't have a lot of effect on him. He knocks down the robot, but then the robot comes out with like a Gatling gun type mechanism in its arm and shoots a bunch of small missiles at him, which throw him into a, an abandoned brownstone which collapses on top of him. The robot then leaves to follow its program, and he's followed by the thugs from the liquor store. Then we go back to the liquor store where Olmec appears, I guess following in the wake of the robot, and as he walks through the broken down wall, the police see him and he has to fight to get free because the police think that he's uh, part of the attack on the liquor store. Superman is emerging from the wreckage of the brownstone and he's angry so he approaches Omak and punches him who grabs his street pole and smashes it against Superman but doesn't affect him and as they're fighting Omak says something to the effect of I have a gut feeling that we should be working together and not against each other and immediately the obligatory superhero fight is over. Superman takes Omak to a rooftop to talk, and Omak, Omak tells him his origin about how he was once a laborer named Buddy Blank and how he was transformed into the one-man army corps. We rejoin the evil robot, who indicates that his Terminator-like mission is to assassinate Norman Blank, who I guess is an ancestor of Buddy Blank, and eliminate o Omak in the future. He tells the liquor store gunman that they must aid him in his mission, and I guess they just accept that as that they have to. So we cut back to Omak and Superman. Superman uses his telescopic vision to try and find out where they are, and he carries Omak off. We cut to Metro Central Station, which I guess is the Metropolis version of Grand Central Station, 
where the murder mech robot is scanning for his target and eventually believes that he finds him. He starts to shoot missiles at a man the same way he did earlier at Superman. And Superman flies in and lets them impact his chest, stating that this time he's ready for them. So now they just bounce off of his chest. He carries the man off to safety and then goes back to fight the robot. The robot uses some sort of tentacles with, made of super resilient plastic to entwine Superman and throw him. We cut back to the man on the ledge in the station who's attacked by the liquor store thugs who are now in some sort of flying armored ships with ray gun technology. And Omak appears and attacks the ships and, and rescues that man. As he fights, he starts thinking that it would be easier if Brother Eye were there. And with that note, we cut to Brother Eye in the future, shooting energy towards the Earth. We cut back to Superman and the robot who are battling on the train tracks. The robot lifts a train car over his head, which Superman melts with his heat vision. The molten slag from the train lands on the robot, and Superman uses his super breath to cool and harden it and then thinks that his only problem is to send the robot and OMAC back where they came from. On that note, we cut to Brother Eye, who's reassembling the time transmitter in the Intercorp uh, bad guy facility. We cut back to Superman, who's being blasted by the robot, which is burst free, and declares itself to be invincible. Superman responds by saying that he'll just, get, he'll just keep getting up and that his ideal can never be destroyed. He gives it a punch with everything he's got and starts thinking to himself that he's exhausted and doesn't know if he can fight anymore. The murder mech starts towards him, stating that he had fought valiantly, but he lost, and then the murder mech just collapses to the ground and explodes. Superman rejoins Omak, who has defeated the liquor store thugs, and they approach Norman Blank, or the man who they believe is Norman Blank, and he tells them that he's not and that he's actually a man named Arnold Berkowitz. And at that point, Omak fades into the future, leaving Superman wondering where the real Norman Blank is. But as he's thinking that, there's a man sweeping up rubble, and we zoom into his name tag, which says Norman Blank. And that's where the story ends. Excellent Did synopsis, you... sir. I'm almost I'm all out of breath. <laughs> uh, now, had you read this one? I read this, actually, when it was brand spanking new. I, uh, I actually have a funny story... Um, when it comes to DC Comics Presents, but I, I, I want to let you run first on, on whatever notes or thoughts you have on this one before I get into all that. Okay, well, he's, I got a couple of notes on it. The first thing I thought was, which I mentioned in there, that we had the obligatory hero fight that you have to have in every team-up issue, but I was kind of happy that they got rid of it so quickly. Although, it didn't seem like the way it would realistically end. You know, He just says, oh, I think we should be fighting together, and Superman's like, okay. And that's that. They just stopped fighting. Uh, I did like that he points out that Superman started it, and Superman's kind of, yeah, to me, it seems like Superman's embarrassed. That's true, yeah, because he, Superman starts call, taking him to task, and he's like, well, you started it. And he's like, oh, yeah, I guess I did. Uh, <laughs> the scene when the robot walks out saying, you know, Superman, you fought valiantly, but you've lost it, and the robot just collapses and explodes... I don't know why, but that reminded me so much of the scene early on in Raiders of the Lost Ark when uh, Karen Allen is having the drinking battle <laughs> with, with, with that guy. And he takes the drink and he looks at her all smugly like, you know, she can't beat him. And then he just collapses to the ground. That's what I pictured in my mind. <laughs> it, is, it actually is a lot like that. 
Now, they never explained why the robot misidentified who he was shooting at, or at least not that I saw. And, and I thought that was a little bit of a, uh, a weakness to the story. Now, I, I wonder with this one, because now the original Kirby series was, I think, either seven or nine issues, and then it was canceled. Uh, and that was another one of those, you know, like we were talking about, kind of a high-concept thing, but it needed somebody to give it a little bit more of a relatable character. You didn't, you, it mm-hmm. didn't have a point-of-view character so that whoever was reading it would kind of latch on to something to to follow the story well it was kind of confusing to read if you've ever read those issues well it's funny uh, because when this issue came out uh, i'll be honest i picked this issue up for one reason and one reason only and that was george perez i was just gonna say george perez i, I saw that cover and i i'm sure you know because you could back in those days i'm sure i picked it up off the stands and actually flipped through it saw the gorgeous art and was just like okay i'm sold but if I had seen, because I can't remember, but if the previous issue said at the end of it, Superman and OMAC next issue, I'm sure I let out an audible groan because I had an issue or two of OMAC at this time when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. I don't think I have them anymore, but I did then. And I just didn't think anything of them at all. I, I didn't like the art. The story was pretty much incomprehensible. I just, I had no... You know, no love for OMAC, basically. I, I wonder with this one, if this wasn't a tryout to throw him out there to see if it was popular enough to try and maybe reboot the series. Cause, but, I mean, they, and they didn't. They, it, they didn't do anything with this until, I'm tempted to say it was around 1990 when Byrne did that... Uh, right that three-issue prestige format black-and-white series. I do think you're right. I, I mean, I... I don't know for sure. I might be missing an appearance somewhere, but uh, I think you could be right. And I think that's the only way that I knew. Um, well, no, I take that back. I just said I had issues of OMA. I was going to say that's the only way I knew who this character was, but no, I did have an issue or two of the, of the old Kirby series, but I learned more about the character from this one issue than I did from, from that issue or two that I had of the Kirby stuff. Because like I said, I, I know I read it and I just couldn't make heads or tails of it one way or the other. I, I just knew that I didn't, it wasn't something I latched onto. And I think presentation is everything. The way it's presented in this is actually, I, I think he's a pretty cool concept and everything. Well, again, that's, you know, that's Kirby. He came up with these great ideas. He just needed to to present them in a, in a little bit cleaner form. But this g- issue gives you everything you needed to know about the character. It gives you how he was Buddy Blank and he was transformed by Brother Eye into Omanek. And it, and it tells you that the, uh, what is it, the inter, not intergang, but uh, I, I lost the name of the uh, company that he's, Intercorp. Mm-hmm. They, you know, Intercorp is basically the evil corporation that he's battling in a series. That's everything you needed to know. Now you can pick up any issue of, of Kirby's Omanek series and, and, you know everything you need to to read it. You think then, comics are to blame for why everybody just thinks evil corporations these days? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to make it that simple, but no. <laughs> it's just, uh, you know, when you see corporations making money hand over fist and then laying off people so that their profit margins can be just a little higher... Right. I think that's that's the, <laughs> the root of people believing that corporations are evil. 
but uh, that's that's a podcast for another day, I think. I uh, yeah, there's a super villain behind all of it, though. <laughs> Norman Osborn. <laughs> but uh, the the other thing about this one that jumped out at me is the fact that the story is such a mirror of the the theme behind the movie The Terminator. And I was I started to think about it. It's like, okay, this is September '83. When did the Terminator came out? 84. And it, it does predate the Terminator. Terminator was '84. Yep. So, I remember it well. So, I, but I, I was I was a little concerned that they were copying the story, but thankfully they they got to it first. I think Lean Ween should sue uh, <laughs> James Cameron <laughs> for every penny he's got. I suspect that James Cameron did not read this issue and come up with the story. <laughs> yeah, there's a special there's a special credit to DC Comics uh, presents sixty one at the end of the the Terminator. You never you never caught that before. <laughs> could could you imagine tomorrow's an interview with James Cameron? He says, "You know where I got the idea? <laughs> there was an issue of DC Comics presents. <laughs> it was this Omax story. I don't remember where I read it, but <laughs> basically, Arnold Schwarzenegger is a uh, an homage to Omax." Oh, you know how you make the Terminator even cooler? You give him a giant frickin' mohawk. I like the giant mohawk. I'm not a mohawk fan in general, but I like it on Omac. Yeah. I don't know. I, I like the look. I like it on Omac by George Perez. <laughs> That's about it. I liked it by Kirby, too. <laughs> and I, I even liked it in the recent reboot by Keith Giffen, because I, I, I like Keith Giffen a lot also. But Keith Giffen in that issue is totally... You know, it, it, it's no question. It's a total homage to Kirby the way he draws in those series. It's it's, you know, he he doesn't. Not only doesn't he try and hide it, he basically hits you over the head with it. Mm-hmm. But it, but I enjoyed that. So what what did you have on this one? Well, I just I have a I have a a crazy idea I want to throw out there because I was looking while you were giving your synopsis to see if I could find anywhere that would that would show me where else, if ever, George Perez and uh, Pablo Marcus had teamed up on a project. And the only thing I could find, you know, just on a quick little search, was another one of my absolute favorite George Perez projects, which was uh, New Teen Titans Annual Volume 1, um, Number 2 which uh, I talked about not long ago on um, um, one of the crisis management episodes of uh, Tales of the JSA. Is that a Starfire-centric? No. No, that's the one that has uh, the vigilante on the cover where he's targeting the Titans. And uh, it's it's pretty much a Robin-centric story. And, uh, you know, I think, granted, all I could find was just these two stories, so maybe that's all they did together. But I think it is entirely possible, even with just those two stories, that I think Par- Pablo Marcus may possibly be the best inker that uh, Perez ever had. I love, love the art in both of these books. This is well, phenomenal. Then I, I, wonder, I wonder how much of it is uh, Rick Hoberg, who I'm not, like I said, I'm not familiar with him, but they give him, they give him an additional credit for... Uh, for an assist on the artwork. Hmm. Yeah, you're right. I, you know, I'd have to, I'd have to pour through it more panel per panel to see if I could see the the Hoberg influence. I I do see some of it. I don't know. But I mean, this page, page six, where Superman makes the scene for the first time. 
holy cow. It's just, I mean, it's beautiful. Just mm-hmm. beautiful stuff. It's really, really great. I mean, I, I'm a I'm a huge Perez fan anyway, but I mean, sometimes I think he's he's inked a little weirdly. I mean, this is just perfect. It, it really complements his art style here. It's a nice thin line that just you know it really just accentuates his art without I, I, it look too. Because sometimes I think Perez looks it, it can look too busy. A lot of his more his stuff in more recent years, I think it, it frankly it just looks too busy. It, it, it's visually, uh, I don't know what the term would be. It, it's just it's like a visual jumble. Sometimes it's hard for your eye to know where to go. I mean, I your eye knows exactly where to go in these panels. It's it's beautifully laid out, and uh, I, I really like the nice smooth thin inking style on this. It's it's great. Well, Perez is one of the very few artists where I would say I read a story and then after I'm done reading it, I, I go back to the first page just to kind of look over the artwork again. Mm-hmm. And there's not too many artists that inspire that from me because I barely have enough time to read as much as I want to. And I'm not going to waste time reading things a second time right after I read them in general. But his artwork is good enough for me to do that with. Uh, you, you mentioned uh, page six where Superman comes in. Mm-hmm. I love the perspective on the very first shot mm-hmm. of Superman. The way the way the the city is kind of curved around, right? Because so, it's giving you that point of eye view, or you know, where you're you're down on the ground and you're looking up at him coming down. And and that's that's a very hard perspective to draw. I think. I like this because it you know for one, it's a lean and mean Superman. You know he he's not huge and bulky. He's not, you know, he doesn't look middle-aged and beefy, which is, I, I think, how That's the Superman, Alex Ross version. Yeah, it, it really, during, well, during this time frame, you know, pre-crisis, I just, I find that the, the regular artists that were, that were drawing Superman issue to issue in, you know, the pages of action in Superman just had a tendency to treat Superman like everybody else, you know, all the other superheroes is dad. You know, like like he was, you know, a late middle aged, you know, superhero. So he was kind of barrel chested. He was kind of stodgy. He was kind of beefy. I like this because this Superman here, this looks like the quintessential, you know, twenty nine to somewhere in his early thirties Superman. I like that. I like him being a young man. I like it. You know, he he's not. He doesn't look slavishly Christopher Reeve. Yet he's reminiscent of Christopher Reeve because Christopher Reeve was solid, but he wasn't muscle bound and he mm-hmm. wasn't, you know, he wasn't barrel chested. He was just, you know, he he was lean and mean. And I like that. And that's how Perez, <clears throat> excuse me, that's how Perez draws Superman here. Plus, I like that, you know, the the fight scenes in this, this is how I like to see Superman. He's both really taking some punishment and getting knocked through buildings and having crap dropped on him and smashed against him and everything. But then he's also really dishing it out. He's, you know, smashing things up and really letting loose and, and really unleashing his superpowers. And it's in the hands of somebody like this, like, like George Perez, where I would, I would think, 
you could present this to someone who's not really digging on Superman and they'd have a tough time walking away not thinking Superman was pretty friggin' awesome in this in this issue because he's doing everything that's awesome about Superman. And I, I like that. And during this time period, it was just such a treat to get stories like that. You know, that's why I always looked forward to when Perez would tackle Superman back in these days, because it was very infrequent, you know, mm-hmm. he, it, it was, re- it really was a special treat when Perez would tackle Superman. And it was one of the reasons I became a, a Perez fan because it was in little bits and pieces, you know, like this. And like when Superman was in the first couple of pages of, uh, of the story where, you know, the Titans go off to find uh Blackfire and stuff like that. It, it was just little peaks, you know, with Superman that, that kind of weaned me into the, the, the larger world of what Perez was working on at the time with the Titans and all that. I, I love that stuff because I was a Superman follower at the time, but Superman was still being done very much in that, that's you know what I look at as kind of a stodgy old silver agey style. He he wasn't terribly dynamic, even though the stories were were you know the writers were trying to change the the story dynamic to make him more relatable and more super again. I feel like the art style of the time just held the character back, and that I think that's one of the reasons why I am you know, just absolutely unrepentant about Crisis on Infinite Earths being just the phenomenal read that I I feel like it is. Because when Superman shows up in that, drawn by Perez, it was just, you know, it was the da-da-da-da moment. I mean, it was just awesome. Because his Superman was just, he, he was, when he would show up on the scene, it was like, okay, here's the big guy, you know? Here, here's, you know, it really was an event like it should be when Superman pops up and it was made that much cooler because again, the regular Superman books of the time just didn't have that same feel. And so a lot of times when you read through crisis, if you go off into the tangential, you know, the, the crossover books, the regular titles with Superman, it's very jarring because then you're going right back into that you know, that style of the, of the middle-aged barrel-chested Superman. And when you had just seen him as a, as a young lean and mean guy in the pages of crisis, it it was such a, a, you know, disparate, you know, vision of that character. But I love this stuff. I'm looking at page 22 right here where he's getting knocked on his butt and the, the robot kind of drags him, Oh, I guess it's Superman raising out of the rubble, but it almost looked like the robot was picking him up like to hit him again or something, and Superman just lets loose that great mm-hmm. roundhouse punch on the bottom of page 22. I mean, God, that's phenomenal stuff. Yeah, that's another one where, where he's got a great perspective of the way the robot is, like, falling mm-hmm. in that shot. I, I would agree with you. I would say my three favorite Superman artists in no set order would be Perez, Byrne, and Neil Adams. Mm-hmm. And the thing they have in common is exactly what you're talking about, that they all had that lean, very formidable, but not huge-looking Superman. Right. And, and But, you know, like, there was nothing about him that made him look, because he was, you know, because he didn't have as much mass, that he wasn't every bit as tough as 
Superman's supposed to be. Uh, which is, I guess, you know, that's what they're trying to do when they make him so barrel-chested is they're trying to make him, you know, look more formidable. Right. Which isn't necessarily what you have to do because those three artists who are all, you know, masters as far as I'm concerned, but they've shown that, that it could be done without making him huge. Right. Uh, that's that's what I don't like about, uh, I can't think of what his name is, the, the artist that drew... Uh, the the recent Superman Batman series that first run McGinnis? with Jeff Loeb McGinnis yeah I, I I just I can't take that you know that ridiculously large proportion that he draws them in uh, I I like that style from a stylistic point of view because that's kind of his style so if you take everybody in his world in his art style to be kind of balloony that's kind of how i describe mm-hmm. that art style is everybody looks like they're they're formed like like how you would form a balloon animal mm-hmm. then then i can accept it that way but if superman looked like that and then everybody else looked like normal you know comic book art then it would really annoy me because then superman he looks freakish he looks like he's just all you know, like every single muscle is is ballooned out to ridiculous proportions. But again, that being his art style, everybody looks like that in his book. So right. it, it doesn't really, you know, I just accept it as that's the style. But yeah, I like that artist a lot. Not one of my favorite Superman artists, though. I, I do agree with you. See, and I like Perez of this art, you know, of, of this time period and this art style because his art did change. It, a lot of his more recent Superman stuff, I have to be honest... I don't dig on it as much. He 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 has changed over the years, not a whole lot, but he has changed over the years. And and his more recent Superman stuff, I I can't put my finger on it, but I I don't dig on it as much. Whereas this right here, I mean, I love it. I I think it does very much stand on its own. But it is also to me, it's very reminiscent of um, a couple of my su- favorite Superman artists, which you know, like you, Neil Adams, definitely one of them. But I look at, you know, I'm looking at Perez as Superman in this particular issue, and you know what? I, I really think that this is a, uh, it's like halfway between Neil Adams and uh, Garcia Lopez. That's another one I left out. Yeah, he. I think he was phenomenal. And you talk about lean and mean that. That was, I think, that's the very definition of Garcia Lopez's Superman, because he wasn't, you know, a, 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 an over-the-top, you know, muscle-bound-looking character. He just, you know, he, I don't know, I, I don't even know how to describe it. He was just, uh, well, for one thing, I, I always did get the impression with with Perez that he was, or excuse me, with um, Garcia Lopez that. Around the time of Superman the movie, I think he v- was very much going for uh, a Christopher Reeve look. Not necessarily aping, you know, the the actor directly, but definitely running with the style, you know, the body style that that Reeve brought to that character, and basically going, "Yep, that you know, that's what Superman should look like," rather than the big, you know, bulky, you know, barrel-chested guy. Mm-hmm. Well, then the you know the other one it kind of contradicts everything we're saying for me, and I, I, th- I think it may be more nostalgia than anything else, because it's when I got introduced to the character. But I still have a warm spot for uh, Kurt Swan's Superman, and I know most people don't necessarily agree with me because they don't feel his art style was nearly dynamic enough. 
But well, uh, well, both Michael Bailey and I, and I have both taken a lot of flack over the years for seeming that we're we're really down on uh, on Kurt Swan. We've even been accused of uh, you know of, of hating the guy or, or you know ripping mercilessly on him. I don't feel like I do. I actually appreciate. Kurt Swan a hell of a lot. I you know I mean he was a, a, a you know a Superman artist for a hell of a long time. Uh, has drawn you know some of my absolute favorite Superman material over the years. You know just by the nature of how long he drew the character and all that. So I definitely appreciate him. I'm not a hater. Um, it's just a matter of you know and it's tough to say but you know there, it, it comes down to there there comes a time when when characters mutate and characters change sometimes there just comes a time when it, it it's time to to move on to other projects or or just let other people take over and and be the new voice of, of that character and in swan's case i think he just stayed on that character too long because i think you look at a lot of his stuff you know, like for perfect example. Look at the the Kurt Swan stuff that's com- contemporaneous with this issue here that we're looking at, and it just—it's not even the same character. Visually, it's not the same character. He's doing a, a Silver Age Superman, whereas this is an attempt to, you know, kind of de-age and, uh, and and make the character more dynamic, you know, visually dynamic. Mm. And they're, they're, I'm not sure exactly where the delineating line is, but there came a time when Kurt Swan Superman was just a very by-the-numbers-looking Superman. He he was no longer visually dynamic. And I don't know if the character, or the artist, rather, I don't know if Kurt Swan, I don't know if his heart went out of the, you know, the, the work that he was doing, or if he was just too old or too in it, you know, set in his ways. I don't know what it was, but there's some point where it just didn't, thrill me anymore it, it, it just you know it, every issue just kind of felt the same you know some weird alien that never mm-hmm. looked terribly interesting or visually dynamic or, or original would come down and he'd battle superman and it was so stiff and so just dull and i i always felt really bad for guys like say marv wolfman especially who were trying so hard to reinvigorate the character and inject something new, you know, some new life into Superman and make him interesting again and give him, you know, interesting subplots and stories and new villains and a love interest and just really trying to to work with that character. And I'm sorry, I just feel like Kurt Swan's art style was was hamstringing him. You know that it was keeping it rooted in everything that everyone identifies with the old fuddy-duddy Superman. So you know what I mean? It's like the the, mm-hmm. the writer slogging his guts out to to do something new and original and dynamic to to make the character interesting again, and the art style is just completely undercutting him. Well, I I, I definitely understand what you're saying, and I. I... I can't dispute it, but I do think, you know, he he basically created the look for Superman. I, I'm trying to remember, you know, I'm trying to remember who was in between uh, Swan and Boring. Boring had him in the late 50s, um, early 60s. Ross Andrew who, was in there for a little while. Um, Al Plastino. Um, but but no, nobody really... 
like took over the character as their own. Right. Basically, you know, between the two of them, there were people who came and went, but there was nobody who was like kind of the acknowledged Superman artist until Kurt Swan took right. over. Right. Right. Yeah, no, and, I agree with you there. Yeah. And and I think he, you know he basically I, I I do agree he kind of overstayed his welcome a little, but until that point when the, when he was drawing Silver Age stories, his art style fit the book really really well. Right. And then like you said, you know maybe the Silver Age started to, uh, even through the Bronze Age because DC I think DC was a little behind Marvel on, you know on on. How its stories, how its storylines developed, uh, so so I think they even lasted into the Bronze Age somewhat. That that his art style fit the book, and then when they did finally start to expand beyond that, which really didn't you know come up until pretty close to when Crisis occurred. You know they they stuck with that that Silver Age style storytelling until you know pretty maybe one or two years before uh, Crisis. Right. So, you know, I thought his style fit until then, and then he probably stayed a year or two too long, because then the, the the stories did start to get a little bit more serious, and they were trying to present a more, uh, I don't want to say grounded again, but a, but a more compelling, dynamic Superman look. Right. Uh, and, and at that point, yeah, they, he did need to go at that point, but they did, I don't think they had anybody who was ready to just step in and do it un, until Byrne took over. Right. I can't so. help but wonder, though, you know, and of course, this is pure speculation, but I can't help but wonder if, well, see, I think part of the problem is that right in the in the era, right around issue 300, you know, on, on either side of 300 was when um, Garcia Lopez came in and did not really so much a run as that he did, you know, a handful of issues here or there. I remember like 301 is a perfect example. The one where Superman fights um, Solomon Grundy. Mm-hmm. Just some love of the issue. best. I'm sorry? I said I love that issue. Yeah. I mean, some of the best Superman art that I, 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 I would say some of the best Superman art we'd ever seen on Superman up to that point. Just beautiful, beautiful stuff. Super dynamic action scenes and a, and a lean and mean Superman I mean, everybody was just beautifully illustrated in that issue. And it was a fight issue that felt like a fight. I mean, Superman hit somebody. You know, he he did stuff. You know, mm-hmm. you could feel the blows in that. And it, it was such a departure from everything that had come before Superman that it really stood out. And there were several issues that um, Garcia Lopez did the art for, and they all stood out. Even if the stories weren't particularly memorable... They stood out because of the art. I think once you have that, I think it's really hard to step back to what came before it. So I think that was one strike against them. But again, you know, with 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 my theory that you know that uh, Marv Wolfman in particular was really trying to steer the character in a different direction and, and revitalize him through the writing, I can't help but wonder. If he'd had support with that from an artistic perspective, say they had gotten someone like George Perez to suddenly take over the regular Superman title. And I forget which one it was that Wolfman was working on, if it was action or or Superman. Maybe it was both. I really don't remember. But whichever title it was, say Perez had stepped in on that book 
and been the regular artist while Wolfman was really writing these these stories, I can't help but wonder if maybe they would have staved off um, reboot, you know, flat out rebooting Superman, you know, or maybe maybe even staved off the crisis entirely. So you're blaming the entire thing on Kurt Swan. Well, no, no, I don't mean it. Well, yeah, when you put it that way, it does seem like I am. I'm really not, because it's not just Kurt Swan. I'm, I'm trying to remember there were other. Oh, I mean, there was like Gil Kane too. Now, I see. I happen to like that stuff, but I'll acknowledge that you know it's it's not exactly new or original or anything. I just I like Gil Kane. You know, and I, I like, like Gil just Kane, take but I don't think he was suited to Superman. I don't think he was for a long, you know, any sort of like long-term commitment. You know, I don't think that he um, was the, again, I don't think he was the right artist either at a time when, uh, you know, that you're, you're trying to do something, um, you know, to, to break that image of, of your character. You know, you're trying to revitalize this character and break him away from, from a certain, um, you know, a certain image and, and revitalize him for, you know, for a younger, wh- whatever they were trying to do. You know what I mean? Just just kind of mm-hmm. pump some new life into Superman and some interest into Superman. Yeah, I don't think getting a classic old school artist like Gil Kane was necessarily a good move either. Although, again, I, I like the stuff that he was doing. Um, I don't know. I had somewhere I was going with all that and my, my train of thought just jumped the rails. But, uh, you know what I mean? I... I know what it was I was going to say is that, you know, I, I don't want anybody to get the wrong impression that this is just me beating up on Kurt Swan because he's not the only one I feel this way about. I, I think that there comes a time that even the greatest of artists sometimes, I, you know, it pains me to say this, but I, I feel like sometimes there is a time for, for somebody in management to just kind of tap him on the sh- shoulder and say, you know, I, I, I hate to s- tell you this, but I think maybe it's time to, to step away from this. And, uh, you know, uh, a perfect example would be my all-time favorite Batman artist will always be Jim Aparo. But I look at the Batman stuff that Aparo was churning out toward the end of when he was working on Batman, and some of that stuff's just flat-out embarrassing. It's just not good art. And Mm. for the longest time, I used to blame it on his inkers. But then I I, I really went back and took a hard look at it not long ago when... um, I think it was Andy Leyland that was covering some of the, the stuff late in, uh, in Apero's career on Batman. And I went back and I looked at some of it and I said, you know, I, I think there's only so much blame that can be put on the anchor. I, I think a lot of it is just, you know, I mean, everybody ages, you know, it sucks, but it, you know, it, it's a fact of life. And I, you know, you hate to call somebody out because they, they, they simply age, they got old, but he got old and somewhere along the line, he just wasn't the same old Jim Aparo anymore. He wasn't drawing the same old Batman that was so thrilling and dynamic in those classic issues of Brave and the Bold. It just wasn't the same anymore. Something had gone out of the art style where it used to seem really, you know, cinematic and dynamic and incredible. Now it just looked stiff and old school. You know, there was something about it that just didn't work anymore. And I mean, comics history is littered with, with artists like that, that just somehow they just, they, they overstayed their ability to, 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 to do the job anymore. And, you know, I'll even, uh, you know, just so people don't think it's me just mercilessly ripping on Kurt Swan. I mean, I'll even say the same thing about Byrne. I think one of the things that kept me 
buying and and following Superman through the from crisis to crisis era through all of its ups and downs and and everything that went on with that was this you know fervent hope that one day by some miracle John Byrne might come back and and save the character again you know that he might come back for for even if it was just for one last swan song and damned if he didn't you know he right before uh, um, Infinite Crisis he did come back. And you know what? It, it was, you couldn't go home again. It wasn't the same. And yeah. it broke my heart because I looked at that stuff and said, damn, I've wanted this for, you know, what? What was it by that point? Almost 20 years. And he came back oh, wow. and, what's that? So was it that long? I didn't realize. Yeah, because that that Infinite Crisis was what? It was like 2006. 2005, four, 2006. Four, five, six, Somewhere around Yeah, there. so damn near 20 years because he did Man of Steel in, uh, in 1986. Right. So, so it was, it was, years. yeah, eighteen to twenty years, you know, and uh, and it just, it, you know, I I had pined for that and prayed for that for so long, and then it came along, and it wasn't horrible, but I could see that if he had stayed for all those years, by the time we got to that stuff, he'd have been in the same shape, you know, he would have been in the same place that I feel that Kurt Swan and and Jim Apparel were, where he. He would have overstayed his welcome that by that point because it just it wasn't the same. It just wasn't as dynamic as it had been, and it's it's really a shame when it gets to that point. You know, there there I think there is a time to just you know when when they're taking a character and a, and a, you know trying to do a different tack with him. Sometimes you just you got to let them. You know, you got to let the old school guys. All right, you know, you, you need to let let go of this character and and let the the hot young buck artists take over you know or whatever you know and you, you rarely see that nowadays from an artist or writer because most teams are on a, on a book for you know a relatively short period of time and then they're gone yep. uh you know the exception being uh bendis on the avengers lasting as long as he has but uh other than that it's hard to think of anyone who's got a really you know serious long-standing writer or art, artist credit on a series that isn't creator-owned Right. Well, they come in to do that six or twelve issue arc to get you know a trade paperback or two sold, and then that's it. It's on to the next guy. And I, you know, I don't want to get on another tear ripping on modern comics, but I, I again, I think that's another thing that that does hurt the modern industry because you don't, you know, you're not getting that sense of, of continuity, or even sometimes a sense that it's even the same character arc to arc because you you don't have the same creators that you know will stay with a character for even a couple of years anymore. They, yeah, and, and and not to you know I don't want to bring us on a whole another tangent, but you, you know you also don't have them you know laying those little seeds to you know to be reaped two de- two years down the line because they don't right. know that they're going to be there two years down the line. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I do. I do. I really think you know it's a lot of little factors like that. And, you know. Uh, you know. I'm sure that a lot of younger fans would chalk that up to just you know the new way written comics are written and and produced versus the old way but i i you know i think that there is something lost in that when you don't have particularly writers that you know that will stick around beyond you know an arc or two i i think that's something that's needed you know it's a it's a it's a glue that 
you know, holds a title or holds a character together for it makes you, you know, identify and care about the world that they live in. If it's just, you know, one dynamic story to the next dynamic story, you know, by, by completely different teams, it, it makes it hard following that, you know, that continuing story because there's not really a continuing story. But again, it, it, that does seem to be the focus of, of, you know, the companies these days is just, you know, let's sell that next trade. So everything's just basically a self-contained, you know, self-contained arc or self-contained story. I, I don't know. I, I don't. I don't dig that as much. I agree with you. That's why I read uh, so many Silver Age books. <laughs> yeah, you and me both. Yeah, I've definitely been on a on a huge tear to just just read old books. But that's okay because that's what this show is all about. Yeah, absolutely. And on that note. It's <laughs> probably a good time to call this one because I don't know how much you're editing out of it, but we're at the two and a half hour mark. Are we really? No, you know, I <laughs> precious little will get edited out. I hope they don't mind sitting through all that uh, apes talk at the beginning of it. But you know, <laughs> that was the commitment but, I swore to this show when, when both when we created it and then when we brought it back was that I, I need to have one at least one project that we do in the in the two true freaks family where it's just. You know what? We sit down, we record, and it goes out there, warts and all, because we we just have to have one that I don't sit in front of the computer for six hours to get it produced. You know what I mean? So, and then you know, hopefully, like you said, hopefully you get the email problem worked out, and you know, we'll hear from people and kind of see what they like and what they don't like, and uh, what they don't like, we'll try and eliminate. Absolutely. Absolutely. We'll we'll say to hell with them and not eliminate, (laughs) but at least we'll know. Well, I'm I'm enjoying the hell out of it just pr- doing the show, and I think that's nine tenths of podcasting is that if you enjoy what you're doing and, and you're earnest and you just you know you stick to your guns about it, nine times out of ten you'll find your audience because they appreciate the fact that you're enthusiastic about what you're doing, you know. And uh, it, it, it surprised me when it started to happen, but you know over time I have heard a lot of people. I know Jeffrey Taylor is one of them that says it all the time that uh, you know for a lot of folks this is their favorite show that we do on our feed, which continues to surprise me. But uh, you know on the on the one hand, it, it makes me look at the other shows that we do slave over and put so much time into with the scoring and the editing and all that, and go, well, damn, you know they like you know they like that better. But then on the other hand. I do take it as a compliment because if it, you know if they're just entertained simply by the sound of my voice and not all the silly whistles and fart noises that we can throw into the background, then that you know so much the better, I guess. Well, everything in moderation is the way I look at it. So <laughs> I get you know you get the show that has it, you get the show that doesn't have it. Everything works out. All balances out in the end. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by visiting the Two True Freaks section of www.forumforgeeks.com. Back to the Bins is produced in association with the Two True Freaks podcast, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.libsen.com and is a registered trademark of DeManzocore of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Back to the Bins is a proud member of both the League of Comic Book Podcasts, which you may find at comicbooknoise.com slash league, 
And also the Comics Podcast Network, which you may find at comicspodcast.com. Take a moment to stop by their respective sites and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.